You are listening to the Adventures in Advising podcast with Colin Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Join us as we bring together and interview those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. We thank you for checking out our podcast. Stay up to date and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Advising Podcast. Now, without further ado, here's the episode. Hello and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin. Matt, this is episode 12. We are a dozen episodes in. We are. And so I got a dozen donuts to celebrate. And can, can you, are you going to have them yourself or will you be trying to share them in a, in a socially distanced manner? I'll probably just drive around and, and toss the donuts to people underhand. <laughs> I hopefully hopefully they 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 catch and uh, can can enjoy. That could be yeah. That could be some good baseball practice right there. It could. I mean, if they drop it, I mean, there's always the five second rule. Does that still apply in a COVID nineteen world? I don't think that ever applied <laughs> originally. So uh, certainly, as a child, it it did. But yeah, quite questionable, questionable. But yeah, we were fed lies. <laughs> And that, that is not what we will be doing in this show. We will endeavor not to feed anyone any lies. But nope. how how are things um, with you right now in California? Oh, man, it's been a heavy, heavy week. So, I mean, there's been a lot happening, not just in California, but across the country. So, of course, we're dealing with coronavirus still. Um, I think Last I saw, the CDC was reporting like 1.7 million cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. And uh, we've unfortunately, we've surpassed the 100,000 deaths linked to the virus. Um, I think many states have been slowly reopening different parts of the economy. So for California, we're in the beginning of what we're calling stage three. So that means uh, the barbershops and hair salons are finally open. And then later in stage three, uh, we will see movie theaters and gyms open up as well as possibly sporting events without crowds. So uh, people might get their fix of uh, sporting events coming soon. And as I may have mentioned in the last podcast, the Cal State University Chancellor Tim White stated that the fall instruction would remain in a virtual format. However, each Cal State campus will determine if there are certain courses that need to be on campus or in a hybrid type model. And if so, they have to make sure they adhere to all the restrictions and guidelines and all of that stuff. New is that the University of California schools, so the UCs, according to the Mercury News, said that the UC campuses would be open in the fall. But uh, UC President Janet Napolitano said that uh, she was quoted saying uh, she anticipates that most, if not all, our campuses will operate in some kind of hybrid mode. Um, So we shall see in the upcoming months how things turn out. I guess in brighter news, though, over the weekend, the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket finally lifted off, previously having the liftoff scrub due to the weather. But that's Florida for you, and you never know what the weather's going to be like. So this is the first time I think astronauts launched from the Kennedy Space Center in nine years. And so I think there's like two NASA astronauts on board. And what's kind of cool is uh, SpaceX is the first company or private company to launch for NASA and last I heard, they also successfully docked with the International Space Station. 
But I know there's a more important one uh, that we want to get to. But before we do, um, how are things over in Ireland? Um, we are, I guess, still in phase one of reopening here, and we, we won't move to phase two until Monday, the 8th of June. We, I guess, had encouraging news this week. We had our first day without any new COVID-19 related deaths since March. Um, but I guess we're all waiting to see what the lockdown, what the outcome of the lockdown. So it's been two, it'll be two weeks this week. So I guess we'll see what the figures are like. I, for my institution, as we discussed the last time, they had come out very early and, and said that for postgrad students, they were really looking at a kind of an online model for first semester and looking to I suppose, focus that initial hybrid model on the incoming first year undergrads. So they have now come out and launched a new and I think innovative approach to accommodation, which will hopefully work for students. I know the aim is certainly for it to work for students. And so I think the thinking is students will probably come to campus in kind of blocks and so there may be a a week on campus or two weeks on campus and then a period off campus so they're going to allow students to book accommodation just for the period of time that they're on campus so if there are continuing students who have to use labs or things like that they too will be able to book on-campus accommodation just for the period of their instruction and that's certainly for the first semester and then the hope is that we will move much more, you know, starting at, at say, at the the more online model for the postgrads, but moving much more to the uh, on-campus in-person model factors allowing. So uh, I guess this is a new model of, of accommodation, certainly in an Irish context. There may be listeners out there where this model has been utilized on their campus before or it's commonplace but certainly not so in an irish context so i i i applaud the the innovative nature of it and i really hope that it will work for students so in terms of my own institution that's where we're at and in terms of where ireland's at i think it's just wait and see at the moment cautious optimism i think again and like in these coming months how how things turn out you know every institution seems like you know, they're kind of doing their own thing and you know, of course doing the best that they can and making the, the really tough tough decisions but we just hope for the best for everyone students uh, included so i guess the major news right now gripping at least the u.s and i think it's also kind of gone globally as well um, is also the death of george floyd um, so there have been massive protests that have been going on for days all over the U.S., especially in, in Minnesota. And there's been other ones in, in California as well. Um, but the officers involved have all been fired. And with the one who had his knee um, on George Floyd's neck, he's being charged with third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. And so if convicted, he could face up to 12 years in prison. Um, so this is kind of like another instance of the many concerns, the deep frustration and the call for change. And just on Saturday, our CSUSB campus president, Tomas Morales, he ended up emailing the campus community. So uh, to all faculty, staff and students. And so I want to read part of what he had in his, his email, his letter. But he said, 
is intrinsic to our lives, whether we have the privilege of ignoring it or have the pain of enduring it. And that problem is structural racism, which uh, pervades every corner of our society. It affects health, quality of life, where and how people live, and it is killing our fellow Americans and those who seek refuge here. And let us also find our support of African-American members of our community who have suffered trauma because of these deaths or similar threats and incidences in their own lives. They have never been able to look away. And it is time for the rest of us to stop looking the other way. And then he went on to say that we must, as a university community, live our core values of inclusivity, innovation, integrity, respect, social justice, and equity. And therefore, we must reject the killings of Americans of color the racist profiling of people of color and continue to support all the communities that we serve. And that includes the actual people on this campus. It is each of you reading this. And when I say diversity is who we are, it is who we are. And so very powerful words. And, you know, again, I think this is something that has just impacted not only certain communities, but just you know everyone um, across our country. And again, I think it's also kind of gone globally as well. But, you know, it is something that um, issues that continue to to occur. And, you know, it's just such an unfortunate situation with what's been going on. But I think it just continues to bring to light a lot of the change that needs to needs to happen. Yeah. uh, I mean, really powerful, powerful statement from your president um, at CSUSB and I suppose, as you said, it it has gone global. We have seen it here in Europe. There were protests today in Berlin. There were protests in London. And there was a vigil at the U.S. Embassy here in Dublin. And there are plans that there will be other vigils held, not only in Dublin, but I know in other cities in Ireland. So it is something that I think people are you know it has sparked i suppose an, an awareness i think that has existed maybe obviously in in more localized context but this feels a little bit different than um previously and i i know obviously um there certainly seems to to be a, a, that desire for change and for this you know to be a catalyst that this cannot happen because we have seen this happen before. I, I, I know I have friends in Minneapolis and I know that when they, they had been out at when Philando Castile, that happened. And I think that the, the frustration, the anger, the hurt is because this keeps happening. And, I am in a incredibly privileged position in in Ireland that that is not something I have had to worry about and the while there are is, issues here that that has has never been an issue so all I can really offer is um empathy and listen to the people who are impacted 
uh, by this. Yeah, it's like, and then everyone can play their part as well to help with this change. And um, even President Morales went on to say that it's not enough for us to say that we are against racism, but we need to become anti-racist. And so this means examining the biases that each of us carry and then acknowledging them, taking responsibility for them and daily striving to change them. And because those biases are barriers preventing us from meaningful engagement with one another as fellow human beings. And um, and then I saw Aaron Justina actually posted um, an article from medium.com. And so it was seven ways you can help black people combat racism. And so that's the title of it. And so it goes on to talk about those, I guess, kind of ways for the solution. And so one is to call out racism for what it is. Two is to hold your sphere of influence accountable. It goes on to say that you also need to understand that privilege and influence exist based on skin color and to educate yourself. Be willing to lose relationships because you stand for what is right. And then to think on what Martin Luther King Jr. said about the white moderate and make sure it isn't you. And and that quoted was shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. And lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And then the last two ways go on to say that when you see a cause, you can join, join it. And do everything you can to let go of the preconceived notion you carry. And so, again, you know, another great advice there and powerful words. Uh, and so we can include this link in the show notes so you can take a look at it. Because I think it has a lot of great things in here for all of us to see. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Yeah, and I think that those sort of re- maybe reevaluating and actual practical steps that we can take to truly be allies so that there will be the, the change that is necessary. To kind of like tie all that in is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's daughter um, actually was quoted saying, true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. And so it's kind of like saying in a way, let's let's take each and every one of us, work hand in hand, let's let's build that future. And so I hope that's something that we we can do and continue to do. Matt, there's plenty to think about in, you know, what what you've outlined there and these interviews that we have in, in the show were conducted a number of weeks back at, at this point. So none of what is going on was, I suppose, as evident then. It was it, it existed, but we probably weren't as as aware. And so it's not something that we address in the the interviews, but hopefully they are topics that will be of interest to listeners and I think there is lots in it in a 
professional context, certainly for advisors to to take from three really interesting interviews that we have uh, coming up in today's show. Yeah, absolutely. And before getting into those, just to make one correction from a previous podcast episode. So in episode nine, where we had the interviews from University of South Dakota advisors, um, one of the advisors, I actually got their master's degree wrong when I was reading their bio. So that was for Brittany Schultz. Um, so I just want to make that correction. She actually has a master's in education in student affairs. So I just want to make sure I get that in uh, this podcast uh, from episode nine. But we do have three great interviews, uh, one from Marion Gabra from UCLA, Dane Zanowski from Temple University, and also from Jamie Zamian from Sonoma State University. Yeah, and all of these interviews were conducted when people were at home. And I suppose in that way in which we're all trying to do working from home with everything else that is going on around us at, at the time. So I think it made for um, interesting uh, inter interviews at, at times as there were uh, so some interruptions and some distractions for some of our interviewees but I think they they all handled it with aplomb and uh, kudos to them for for doing so and for taking the the time to chat to us yeah and this episode is dedicated to uh, Dr. Chris Linfeld the associate dean at California State University, San Bernardino, who unfortunately passed away way too young. Um, so June 2nd um, coming up, if you're listening to this on Monday, it'll be tomorrow, um, is two years since he passed. And so we're doing a little change up to usually our question of the week. Uh, this one, we're actually sharing our memories of Chris. And so later on in the podcast, we'll have some memories shared from Charlie Nutt, from Dewan Jackson, also from Deborah Parsons, and also from Kara Marie Fom. But our first interview coming up is with Marion Gabra. She's the Director of Advising Professional Development at UCLA. And so it was nice getting to chat with her because uh, we had the opportunity to interview Marion in early May, like Colm said. And we got to talk to her about the Advising Communities of Excellence program, teaching first-year experience, working at UCLA, and also being part of NACADA. So a lot of great info and stories. And we'd like to share that interview with you now. All right, let's give a warm welcome to Marion Gabra. Marion has served as a Director of Advising Professional Development and University Studies at UCLA since 2016. In this role, she has created and implemented the Advising Communities of Excellence, ACE, Professional Development Program, offering interactive workshops and initiatives that bring together campus professionals to explore the relationship between advising theory and practice. She has led a committee of 20 volunteer staff members that together build community practice theory and theorize practice. ACE has collaborated with campus partners, librarians, the research center, and faculty to develop an advising research agenda at UCLA. Marion and the ACE community, or committee, I should say, have been awarded the 2018 Nakata Region 9 Advising Innovation Award. Marion has also served Nakata Region 9 as the professional development coordinator from 2018 to 2020. In addition to her work with ACE and Nakata, Marion is the director of and instructor for the University Studies First Year Seminar Program, which provides students with tools, strategies, and the knowledge to transition to, engage with, and navigate UCLA. Prior to her advising career, she taught courses at UCLA in writing and literature. Marion earned her doctorate in comparative literature from UCLA in 2010. Marion, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here with you both. We're delighted that you are able to chat with us and you have an absolutely incredible bio. So we're very excited to dig into that. But maybe before we delve into to those things, uh, we'd be interested in hearing Matt and I have been discussing the COVID-19 situation and its impact on higher ed for the last couple of months now. But how are things at UCLA? Well, we are all working really hard. I would say double, triple time to make sure that we are supporting students and faculty and each other during this really challenging pandemic. Um, we have been remote uh, since about March 16th. And that has been great in the sense that we've managed to be very accessible to students by providing virtual advising and remote teaching. And, you know, we're so grateful to have our jobs during this time. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it's been a real challenge. Um, many people have, you know, felt the deep impacts, not just personally and, you know, with all the uncertainty that's out there, but professionally as well. Um, you know, I am working from my dining room. The place that was once a space of social gathering is now the place where my husband and I have set up shop. And I have a very, very extroverted, rambunctious four-year-old who loves to come in and interrupt. So you may be hearing from her in this session and you know i don't think we will edit that out because that is kind of the reality of what so many of us are going through we have just learned that summer sessions is also going to be remote at ucla and um, higher level administrators are still um, haven't made a decision about fall quarter so fall may or may not be fully remote we're waiting to hear about that yeah, same here for Kelsey Summer. You know, we know summer's going to be online and fall right now is kind of the the big question that we're getting asked from students. For you though, um, you know, you talked about being, you know, you have your family. How is it that you're juggling all this from, you know, being at home, taking care uh, of your family, but then also taking care of your students and um staff? How how's how are you handling all that? Well, I don't know if I'm handling it well, but it's getting done <laughs> to the best of my abilities. Um, I, you know, something that I'm doing for myself that I never did before is actually exercising. You know, I, I don't even recognize myself anymore. I like to sweat now. That was never the case. Um, well, it, it made me realize just how I used to get so many endorphins from, you know, being in front of people and teaching and leading wow. workshops and running from one meeting to another across UCLA's large campus, that sitting at home has been really hard. So um, just moving my body, having dance parties with my daughter um, has been really good for my well-being. Um, luckily, I really enjoy my husband and my daughter. So it's made quarantining together quite pleasant. And I do think that one of the perks of all this is that we've bonded and gotten closer together. Uh, but it is a challenge. I mean, I feel like I'm on the go as 8.30 to 5 or 6 without a moment to really breathe just because I have so many meetings, back-to-back -back sessions. So I'm trying to be kinder to myself and, and putting in more breaks, but it's really challenging because then a student will email saying that, you know, they need support. And I have 
such limited availability to see students because of my role with university study and ACE. Um, and with all the committees that I sit on. So when I do have, you know, that time where I've held my calendar, I, I, I do like to meet with students. So I'm still trying to figure it out. It sounds like your four-year-old being an extrovert, uh, she didn't, uh, you know, get that from nowhere. I think uh, she got that from her mom. And uh in, in your bio that Matt read, there was a litany of things that you seem to have going on. You seem to be keeping a number of different plates spinning. And I suppose maybe if we were to talk about ACE initially, for listeners, could you tell them a little bit more about ACE and what it is and how it, how it works? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Oh, I'd be happy to. And I am definitely a plate spinner. And plate spinning gives me a great deal of joy. Uh, it's one of the things that makes me come alive. So I embrace that. Um, I just need to figure out how to do it a little bit slower, <laughs> especially when there's a pandemic. Um, but ACE, um, I absolutely love ACE. I am the inaugural director of advising professional development at UCLA. So when my supervisor, who's the assistant vice provost for undergraduate academic support, became more involved with NACADA, she realized, wow, I should hire somebody to uh, develop workshops for our advisors on our campus. Our campus has a decentralized advising model. And when the position opened up, I applied. And before I even uh, got the position, I did a great deal of research uh, in terms of what kinds of professional development programs existed um, around the nation. And I consulted with Elizabeth Wilcox at Berkeley and with Brett McFarlane when he was at Davis. I did find that most of the programs focused more on training and competency building and not as much on um, research and knowledge production. So I thought, what an amazing opportunity at UCLA, since we are at a top tier research university, to strive to be on the cutting edge of advising research and to create a structure that was going to foster that. Um, I knew that I had to get buy-in. So I, you know, once I got the position, I created a strategic plan from marketing to um, a needs assessment across the campus, figuring out what the advisors who were very seasoned needed to hear to get on board and what sort of the newer to middle advisors also needed from a program like this. And, you know, what people wanted, they didn't want to be talked at in training sessions. They wanted to be a part of the conversation. And so I thought it's so important to build an intellectual learning community on UCLA's campus where 
advisors can come together and really engage with the relationship between theory and practice that you know, it was important for us to also articulate our own innovative advising practices that we were developing by having these kinds of conversations. And so the vision of ACE is to build community practice theory and theorize practice. And so we've, I, I knew that it would work best if I had a committee. Those are like the grassroots boots on the ground ambassadors who are going to go in and, you know, really get people to support this program. And it's worked amazingly. Like the volunteer committee members are talented and devoted and creative and thoughtful. And I, the program wouldn't be what it is without them. It's great because they also represent different parts of the campus. So we have representatives from student affairs, from different academic departments, the different schools and the College of Letters and Science. So it's really a way for um, advising to come together in a more um, community based way at a decentralized campus. So we're in our fourth year, um, going to be entering our fifth year. And uh, it's amazing to see all the initiatives that we've created. We have, um, in addition to our workshops, we have ACE Reads, which is study groups for our advising community. We have ACE Writes, which is writing support group for our advising community. We have ACE Talks, which are like TED Talks, and we get to feature the voices of academic advisors. We have our research series and our research advisory board where we've partnered with our librarians and faculty in the undergraduate research center. So it's, you know, we have a mentoring program. It's open campus wide and all of our events and our programs have a minimum 50 participants. The reading and writing groups are a lot smaller though, but it's been um, great to see people who um, were may not have been so um, vocal or engaged in the advising community really come alive through this program. That just sounds amazing. And to be in your fifth year now doing it, I think that's just a testament to like your passion and drive for it, but also to have a volunteer committee. That's something extra that they're doing, but they love to do it. And you can kind of tell just from what you're saying, just how involved and how they want to be involved in it. And to have on average 50 members of UCLA that are attending these these meetings or workshops, kudos to, to you on that for sure. At the Nakata Region 9 conference that was supposed to be in Palm Springs, you were also going to be presenting, I believe, on this. And I know for Palm Springs, for our conference, like this was a, a big topic. We had a lot of proposals submitted around community engagement with advisors at your respective institutions. And I was looking forward to attending yours for sure, because I, I wanted to learn more about um, ACE and what you do, because um, I'm part of a committee at Cal State San Bernardino that also works with um, our advisors on campus. So I was like, what can I learn from Marion and, and, and bring that to, to Cal State San Bernardino? So I'm glad that we're having this because I'm I'm taking notes on, on everything that you're saying. Uh, but my question is uh, regarding like the research, um, because sometimes uh, hearing the word research, sometimes advisors get intimidated by that, um, either that they're nervous about it or don't know how to get involved in it, but they're interested in it. So through ACE, how, how can you get advisors to get be a part of, you know, the idea of research or be interested in research and be part of that? Well, a couple of things. One you have to make a strong case as to why it's critical 
both in terms of elevating the role of advisors, the way advisors are seen on campus, two, um, so it helps you be more intentional when you support students, right? It gives you the language and the framework. And then the other side of that is you have to create a structure that enables advisors to do it, right? So you can't just say, this is important, go do it. You have to create a system and a structure, like an infrastructure to make that possible. Uh, so one, in terms of just, um, you know, stating the rationale very clearly. Um, I had an opportunity to, to address the academic advisors at our, you know, all departmental counselor meeting. And, you know, I, I basically are, you know, express that we need to write ourselves into existence. We need to be seen and heard, not just as those people who help students pick classes, which is really what we don't do, um, but rather we directly impact student learning and development when we engage in quality advising that is informed by research. We need to be seen as experts within the field, not just any staff member who can fill that role. And in order to do that, we need to speak the language of faculty. We need to um, you know, speak the language of data assessment, research, and we need to be able to contribute to it. Right. We're never going to get that seat at the table unless we are seen in this light. And so just really making a case for that and also, um, you know, underscoring that we are better at our craft when we have the language, the tools and the framework, when we're able to identify them and express them both to students, to faculty, to staff, to higher level administrators. And so to create that infrastructure, um, I partnered with our librarians and the way in which I got them to partner with us, because when I first pitched this partnership to them to help us develop uh, an advising research workshop series, they were kind of like, we have a lot to do. <laughs> we support so many people on campus, like we're under-resourced. The way that I got them was, you know, we have a shared experience, just as everyone thinks that librarians are there to help students find books, right? Same way as the way people assume academic advisors are just there to help students pick classes. Well, we need to band together to really debunk those assumptions Academic advisors are on the front lines. We get to see so many students. The more we have a better understanding of what librarians actually do, the more we can express to students, hey, why don't you go visit a librarian? This is what can happen when you go in for a library consultation. This is how they can support you. And, you know, the more librarians know what we do, they can say, why don't you visit an academic advisor? They can support you academically, personally, professionally. These are the different ways that we can create communities of care and support when we're connected to each other, not just simply sending out referrals, but really making intentional connections. So we have to be connected in order to do that. And that got them. They realized that, oh, okay. We have a shared experience. They can help us debunk these assumptions about what we do. So they were game. 
they were on board. And so we created a, an advising research workshop series. There were seven mm-hmm. workshops in the series and advisors who completed all seven earned a certificate of advising research. So that was something that they could put on their resume, that they could you know, really say that this was a professional development opportunity that granted me a certificate. And we had about uh, over 50 unique individuals participate in at least one of the workshops. We had four people complete all seven, and we had nine with honorable mention who completed four out of the seven workshops. So it was just a way to um, to really create a, a structure. It doesn't mean that it's perfect. Um, we really want to figure out how we can get buy-in from departments and faculty. I think the biggest issue is compensation, time and compensation to engage in this process. But if we can get advisors to work with their faculty on assessing um, a specific uh program or initiative or a question that they really want to know about their students, then this can help sort of promote research and assessment within the advising role. So we're really looking to um, tweak the workshop. We're offering it every other year. And so we didn't offer it this year. So we're looking to offer it next year, hopefully. Um, But this time we want sort of everyone to work on a, a like an end goal where they come up with a project that they're all working on together. So by the end, that project will come to fruition. Marion, this is really fascinating. I suppose for me, community engagement and language are two of the things I probably nerd out on. So the, to me, I, I you know, I, I could talk around this topic for a long time, but for listeners, I suppose, and those who, you know, maybe don't have the the infrastructure that has been put in place in in UCLA are there things that you know they can practically do themselves or with colleagues if if they don't have that infrastructure what would your advice to those um advisors be i would say that our ace reads initiative would be um something that any institution can model it doesn't take too much support. It would take uh, one or a few people taking the initiative to take the lead and to organize it. But the way ACE Reads work is, you know, these are study groups for our advising community. So I put out a proposal every year for people to submit an application to be an ACE Reads facilitator. And as the facilitator, you would uh, schedule the meetings for the people who want to be a part of your study group. You would send out the reading. You can even do a a survey or a poll on what people in your study group would like to read. Um, But when you submit a proposal to have a study group, you you have a study group topic. So for example, we have one um, on wellness, one on advising approaches and theories, one on um, basic needs, another one on feminism in higher education, and then another one related to our common experience, which is like um, what other institutions have is like the common book. We have a common experience. So it's different readings related to that theme of whatever the common experience is. And our study groups are really amazing because um, these are folks who want to do a deeper dive into a topic. 
So you're doing it together with your uh, study group. So workshops are great, but two hours isn't enough to really do a deep dive into a specific topic. So this is a way to sort of build that sense of community engagement and to engage in sort of research um, theory together with um, fellow colleagues who are equally interested in the topic. And do you feel that, uh, like, let's say many schools or institutions want to implement things like this and let's say their fall term ends up being online and being on campus, maybe they go on campus later in this year or early next year. Can a lot of this be turned into something Zoom related or online that people can still get engaged with? Yes. So all, all of ACE has gone fully remote. In fact, we even have more events than normal because people want to engage in community dialogues about specific topics. But our ACE reads and ACE writes groups have, I would say, been even more successful now that we've gone virtual because it's easier to fit it into your calendar when you don't have to run from one meeting to another, or one space to another. Um, you're able to actually do more, right? You can have those back-to-backs, which I, we should try to avoid as much as possible. <clears throat> but I found that uh, our study group sessions and our writing group sessions have had more participants now that we've gone virtual. Nice. And kind of going along those lines about uh, virtual or working remotely, do you have any advice for advisors that if they do continue to be working remotely through the fall term, or at least part of the fall term, how they can, I guess, work more with, you know, the crossing of the work and home life and balancing all that? Well, that's something that we really have to be thoughtful about. Um, We're trying to figure that out because advisors are in the business of wanting to help everyone. It's really hard to think about what are we going to let go of, right? At this rate, we're working double, triple time and it's not sustainable. The pace is not sustainable because we're trying to either replicate or do more than what we were doing to be able to support folks. And I'm guilty of it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing more and I should be doing less, but I don't know how to do that. But we have, we keep talking about being self-kind and self-compassionate and redefining productivity. But you know, unless we create a system and a structure that's going to actually operationalize that, I'm afraid that um, we're going to continue to work at this pace. And so what do we let go of? That's a really hard question that has to be discussed within units and departments and with supervisors amongst colleagues. I think that's what we're struggling with right now. If it's, it seems likely that it'll continue into the fall quarter. Yeah, I think that's exactly it because the the level of uncertainty as well just adds to what advisors are, are dealing with. We There's the uncertainty for the students, the uncertainty for the institution, and advisors are kind of caught in in the middle trying to, to keep that plate spinning. Now, we discussed, obviously, ACE, and I was eager to, to dive into that. But for listeners, maybe, Marion, how did you get into advising? Maybe you could give us a, a little bit on, on your background. I had such uh, a non-traditional way into advising, but I guess many advisors have. I mean, if you'll allow me to just kind of go back to undergrad, <laughs> because... 
you know, uh, I'm a first gen college student from a low income back, uh, low income family, immigrant parents. My parents are immigrants from Egypt. And when I went to college, they said, you're going to be a doctor, a medical doctor. And I said, okay. And I took math and chemistry my first semester. And I was just like, what the F is this? This is nothing like, you know, my AP calculus in high school. And I took a literature class that first semester and I fell in love with it. So I went home and told my parents that I was going to change my major to English. And they said, absolutely not. You're not going to major in a language that everyone speaks in this country. It just makes no sense. And I, you know, it took a while, but I remember after Thanksgiving break, I said, you know, I, I'm going to change my major to literature and I'll become a professor like a, a literature professor. And they were like, hmm, not really knowing like what that meant, but kind of knowing what that meant. They were like, okay, fine. Like that's respectable enough. <laughs> so just like that, I had made a decision, you know, for the rest of my life and without really thinking what it meant to be a faculty member or like the likelihood of getting a tenure track position, none of that. So I, I went to UCLA for my PhD in comparative literature. I really enjoyed my uh, graduate program, uh, but I ha almost had like one foot in, one foot out. I was a bartender for about 10 years, all throughout graduate school and shortly after. Uh, and this will be important later because it taught me really important skills like active listening, don't give anyone advice, how to multitask, how to stay calm under pressure. These are skills that I was honing, you know, and also building rapport with people that I didn't want to let go of and that I wanted a career that would continue to foster those skills. So I finished my PhD and then I went on the academic job market and I realized this is not the life that I want. Like I got a glimpse of what it could be like if I had got a job in Idaho I would have to move to Idaho I would have to publish or perish I would be in this sort of the realm of the ivory tower but I loved my office hour sessions I love building connections with students and they would share so much with me especially the students of color and students from low-income backgrounds and from underserved communities because um, they connected with me on that level and I just thought it was so powerful to have such an impact on student lives by, you know, engaging in those conversations that sometimes had nothing to do with the course material. So I had to do a lot of soul searching and I realized that I needed to kind of walk away from this dream or this goal that I had been working on for 11 years, if you count undergrad. And it was actually quite traumatizing because my whole identity up to that point was, you know, as a professor. And to want to let that go, to have a greater, more immediate impact on students um, was something I knew I had to do. So I knew I wanted to go into academic or student affairs, but I didn't know in exactly what area. So I went on a lot of informational interviews and I found that the counselors were the happiest people in terms of how gratifying and meaningful their positions were. Like the, the work was really valuable to them. 
So um, I applied for a lot of positions and it took two years and 23 job interviews and rejections before I got my first counseling position with the Academic Advancement Program at UCLA. Um, They serve students from historically underserved communities. And I had been doing a lot of pro bono work for them to build up my portfolio because my resume was all teaching and bartending. So I needed some more academic affairs type work. So I, they hired me and then I fell in love with it. I knew what advising was, but I didn't really know until I got the job, how rich and complex and um, just meaningful and amazing it is, you know, policy is black and white, but students are gray and, you know, using, ethical sound judgment to make really important decisions about student lives and supporting them, not just academically, but personally and professionally, I was blown away. And so I was so grateful that I made that decision. Oh, yeah. And it's it's a lovely story because it's always nice just hearing everyone's path into advising where it's almost like you kind of find yourself in it. But just like you're saying, like, you don't exactly know everything it entails until you start doing it and then see how rich it is and how much is actually involved. Um, and it's nice that you put it that way in terms of like campus policies, procedures, black and white, but the students gray, because there's there's always some scenario that we haven't thought of that we kind of have to use our judgment and then based off what the policy procedures are and how can we work with that to help and benefit the student. <laughs> You also still teach, though, right, with uh, your freshman seminar program? I do. And I it's great because I get to teach students how to engage with, transition to, and navigate, uh, like, the complex structure of a research university to think about, you know, what they hope to achieve during their undergraduate education and beyond. Um, we get to talk about academic self-management and time management We talk about the diverse university and how to foster an inclusive campus culture and really thinking about the multiplicity of their intersecting identities and, you know, how they move through it. Um, We talk about the college to career transition, how advisors can support them throughout their time there. Um, We do a deep dive into self-authorship and how they can create their own narratives so it's a really rewarding. It's it's basically what we do in academic advising, but bringing it within um, the context of educational curriculum. So it's it's been so much fun and it's transitioned really well in the virtual format with inclusive, interactive um, pedagogy and, you know, using a lot of the technological tools that we have at our disposal to make it as um, engaging as possible for the students. Yeah. And uh, Marion, are you familiar with Bruin Walk? Yes. Okay. So it's kind of like the Rate My Professors, I guess, of UCLA. Um, so I just wanted to read a couple comments because I was like, let me just go on here and and let's see if there's anything uh, for Marion. And there was. And it's all positive. <laughs> um, so this student wrote, um, Dr. Gobber was an amazing professor for this class. It was clear that she enjoyed teaching it. She was also extremely successful at facilitating an intimate class atmosphere where all students felt comfortable talking to her and their peers. 
One small detail that I found admirable was that she never pressured students to speak in class, but at the same time, as someone who is typically very reserved, I felt comfortable answering her questions and sharing my thoughts. Aside from completing the assignments and contributing to the class, my biggest point of advice would be to interact with your classmates. Rarely will you have a class that encourages you to share your story, interests, and aspirations with others. Take advantage of it. And the second one said, Professor Garber is an excellent teacher. She cares about the success of each and every one of her students. Taking this class was an absolute asset for me as a transfer student. This class gives you valuable information to transverse the UC UC system and UCLA. (laughs) You're making me blush. (laughs) (laughs) I've never even read those. Thank you for sharing that. I I don't really go on Bruin Walk. (laughs) I mean, I always tell students like like, rate my professors. I'm like, you know, take with a grain of salt, you know, because rate my professors, they have like the chili pepper, how the hotness factor and all that. But I always tell students, if you're going to go on there, look at like what's consistently said about the instructors, but do take into consideration, it's their opinion. But what are they saying specifically about the instructor regarding the class? And I think these are super specific. Um, and I think it just kind of shows, you know, you're talking about your interest in the teaching and the students and what you do with the professional development with the advisors. Like it all ties into, you know, setting this foundation of success for everyone involved, but everyone has a, you know, a place at the table as well. Um, thank you. I hope so. I try to create mm-hmm. a culture, you know, I, to create a culture where people feel validated, seen and heard and are a part of the conversation. I believe strongly that, you know, we need to make meaning together. So we are all experts in our own lives and <clears throat> in our respective, you know, fields and expertise and um, it's it's really nice when that knowledge is shared in a dialogue that is inclusive and and uh, meaningful. Now, Marion, another role that you have is that you are the professional development coordinator at uh, Region Nine Nakaba, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what that role entails. Yes, so I am coming up to the end of my tenure as the professional development coordinator. So I shameless plug and encouraging anyone out there who is interested in applying. You don't need to have extensive professional development experience to run as the professional development coordinator. Um, Elizabeth Wilcox was the inaugural professional development coordinator, and I came in as the second. Uh, In my role, I have drafted um, a mission and goals for this position and have um, launched the sessions to go, like webinars for our region, Um, Matt and his colleagues at Cal State San Bernardino were the first um, for session to go, which is amazing. So I hope people check that out on our website. Um, But what the goal of the professional development coordinator is, is to um, really try to advance research and uh, scholarly inquiry and professional development opportunities for the region and to be able to connect us across um, our institutions, you know, at this point virtually, it's a really great way to do that. So I've very much enjoyed it. Um, In addition to, you know, trying to think about innovative ways to connect with us, what I value most about being on the steering committee is just connecting 
with all the steering committee members once a month, and especially when we get, have gotten to meet in person at the annual and regional conferences. I must say those business dinners, steering committee dinners are such a plus. That's where we get to really get to know each other and connect as people uh, and share so much about ourselves. So it's a truly rewarding experience. I hope that somebody will apply that many people will apply in the elections coming up. And this kind of goes with, with any region, right? Like if there's an election coming up, there's a role, apply, you want to get involved, this could be a, a fantastic way to do that. And I will second the uh, dinners uh, at Strength Committee Dinners. They're so much fun and you really get to get to know everyone on the committee and it, it becomes so personable and, and enjoyable as well. And speaking of conferences, speaking of Nakata, um, roles that, that you have within Nakata. But to kind of celebrate Nakata, is there any uh, favorite memories that come to mind, uh, whether it's something that you, you learned or a mentor or a uh, favorite experience at a conference? So there are so, uh, I mean, there are so many. Uh, I love connecting with people. I mean, when I think of Nakata, I think of family, I think of community and just, um, you know, it's, Nakata conferences are so different than academic conferences in the best possible way. I mean, it's just you feel like you're going into a big warm hug. But I would have to say one of the highlights that I've experienced was in Phoenix uh, the year before last. And I got an opportunity to have a one on one with Mark Lowenstein, who is like, uh, I geek out over Mark Lowenstein's work. When I first read, If Advising is Teaching, um, What Do Advisors Teach? That really spoke to me as an educator transitioning from, you know, teaching to advising. I mean, yes, I still teach, but it's, it, you know, it was just kind of a, it's still somewhat of a transition from the tenure track dis academic discipline based teaching to what I'm teaching now. And having a one-on-one -on -one with him for an hour was like one of the most amazing moments. And, you know, he's been so generous with his time. And I'm currently working on um, an article. Um, I want to, I hope to publish an article on um, toward an interdisciplinary theory for academic advising. And he's been like such a great mentor to that. He's also contributed to the advising counseling research guide that, um, that I co-authored with one of our librarians, Doug Worsham, who's been a great, great partner. And so Mark has just um, been uh, very generous with his time and he's contributed content and he's got other folks from Nakata to help contribute to that. So I would say that's a highlight from Nakata. Marion, this has been absolutely fascinating. You have offered us insights. You have offered practical advice. You've offered, uh, you know, you've told us what you're planning on doing in the future. We could, I think, spend another hour speaking to you. We'll definitely have to have you back on the podcast again in the future. But for right now, I just want to say thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure. I have enjoyed this immensely and it has been just wonderful and thanks for being so generous with your time thank you so much it's been great to chat with you too i'm so honored to have been invited to participate in this and i will come on and talk to you too anytime so you you let me know when and i'll be there awesome sounds good thanks mary really 
fun interview with Marion there. I found her to be really inspirational. I mean, she seems to be juggling so many things and always looking for new opportunities. And hopefully listeners can take away some of that inspiration into their own professional lives. And the next interview that we have um, is... Uh, with Dane and again another interview from just a couple of weeks ago another person who always seems to have a lot going on and a wonderful friend of the Adventures in Advising podcast so we were delighted to get the opportunity to chat to Dane I think it is and we outlined this in the interview had been in the works for a little while so it was good that he we were able to to find the time and it it covers i suppose a, a number of different topics from how to advise different cohorts of students uh he talks a little bit about his work with alumni foundation he were talks a little bit about starting work in uh a, a new institution and I think we can go right into that interview now. All right, our next guest is Dane Zanowski, who is an academic advisor for health profession students in the College of Public Health at Temple University in Philadelphia. Prior to joining CPH advising team in November of 2019, Dane was an academic advisor at Drexel University for five years in the College of Engineering, where he advised mechanical engineering students. At Drexel, he also taught first-year seminar and introduction to civic engagement courses, along with leading advisor training and development efforts. Dane has over 10 years of higher education experience, starting out in financial aid back in 2008. With a passion for academic advising and continuing to serve students, he is becoming more involved with organizations like Nakata, from writing a book review, reading regional and annual conference proposals, to serving in the training development advising community. Outside of work, Dane enjoys spending time with his wife and daughter and is an avid Star Wars movie and comic book fan. Dane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Matt and Colm. And I will say I'm definitely a self-proclaimed fanboy of the the podcast as well, if you couldn't tell already. (laughs) And based off that last sentence I read, uh, this podcast will now change to a Star Wars movie and comic book episode. (laughs) Yes, let's do some reviews. (laughs) Absolutely. But speaking of what you just said about uh, being a, a fanboy of the podcast, this has been a long time coming with scheduling this interview, right? Yeah. I mean, back when the first episode was posted, um, I think you had sent me a message on LinkedIn and said how much you were enjoying the podcast and you were learning a lot, which was great because, you know, we wanted feedback. We wanted to know, hey, is this even, you know, working? Is this resonating with, with, with listeners? And then the second episode got posted and then you sent a message and said, I've already contacted Craig McGill uh, based off the professional relation of advising, which was even wonderful still because not only was an interview that we posted uh, with Craig, but like you got something from it and then you went and contacted him, uh, which a little story with that is like when I saw that message, um, I think it was like a couple hours later, I got on my phone and texted Craig and I was like, Hey, uh, someone from that listened to our podcast said they were going to contact you, and he's like, "Oh yeah, from Temple, yeah, I, cool guy. I already contacted him. Yeah, we've already connected." So, 
that was pretty cool. But then like anything, we get busy. And then I think a month and a half went by. And then I was like, yeah, I think Dan would be great on this podcast. So uh, we did a, a Zoom uh, meeting, kind of just chatted because uh, when I was like, hey, you should be on the podcast. I said, I don't know when and I don't know what about, but we're going to find something. And I think maybe after reading this bio, there's a lot that that we can definitely talk about. Um, but again, I think, you know, it's it's great that you've been listening to the podcast and um, it's really wonderful to, to have you on right now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And really, too, for the podcast, it's I've definitely it's been beneficial in, in many different ways. One, like you mentioned, I reached to Craig. I was like, Craig, one, loved your interview Two, like the whole idea of who advisors are, how we come into our roles and like, how are we as a profession? I was like, tell me more. Like, I want to learn so much more. Um, and definitely the other thing I've used your podcast for, to be honest with you, is any new advisor or anyone interested in advising, I'm like, hey, check out this podcast. It's awesome. It gives you a good overview of Nakata, what we do in advising. You get to hear stories from actual academic advisors. So it's like promoting that to like anyone interested in the field. I think it, it's been a great resource for that as well. Thank you. I we we didn't know that uh, it was being used in that way. So it's great to to hear, and uh, hopefully it is encouraging them to uh, get involved in in the world of advising. I I'm interested. I suppose, Dane, um, we're in the midst, obviously, of the the COVID nineteen situation at the moment, and. For you at Temple, what has been going on? Has Temple made a decision about how it's going to handle the, the summer and the fall as yet? Yeah, so we've, as of right now, our both our summer one and summer two sessions have been moved online. So all the courses are online. Um, we have a what's called a contingency committee within the college who they're prepping for fall semester. So as of right now, no official word for fall semester, but they're essentially prepping for one of like three or four different scenarios, right? Best case scenario, we're all back on campus. We're starting uh, late August, you know, in campus in person, which would be great. Um, They're also kind of formatting, preparing for like a hybrid version where if there's a lecture course of anything larger than 50 students, the lecture is going to be online, but they can still do lab and recitations in person. Um, or, you know, like the third scenario is everything's fully online, right? Um, so they're they're kind of pre- prepping for those scenarios, but no official word as of yet, as of today. So, yeah. And this is being recorded on May 12th with this episode being posted in June. So I'm sure we'll follow up with you right before we post this to see <laughs> if there's any update uh, regarding Temple. And um, I guess... You know, yeah. maybe talking about Temple or even Drexel, the students that you work with. I know when we've talked before, um, you were telling me about your journey into academic advising. You know, everyone has their their different way of getting into advising or finding themselves <laughs> or stumbling into or, or whatnot. And I found yours very interesting because, I mean, you work with students in uh, health professions. Uh, but prior to that, you were working with students in um, uh, engineering but then you have like a liberal arts uh, background. So 
Can you can you guide us through that that journey? Yeah, yeah. So it's funny because I'm actually working with some colleagues now too. We're working on a blog post from Nakata to talk about our stores and our journeys into advising. You know, connecting to what Craig's doing um, out in South Dakota. But yes, for me, um, my story starts. I love to tell the story of. I call it the story of the two Bobs. Um, so for me, I had two mentors in my undergraduate career at Penn State University, uh, Bob McGill and Coach Bob Barton. Um, Bob Barton was my tennis coach who he was the first one who recommended me to be an orientation leader after my freshman year. Um, so I got involved there. That was my first foray into student leadership. And then Bob McKegg was the, um, then head of enrollment management at Penn State Abington. He's the one who essentially created a peer advisor position for me, um, outside of orientation leading. So it started with them, and initially I wanted to teach high school Spanish, but as I got involved as a student leader in my undergraduate time, I was like, wait a second, I love the college environment so much more, it's so much more laid back, you know, you're not not as structured as high schools would be. Um, so it started with the two bobs, and then, so what I did, I graduated with my degree in Spanish, because again, I wanted to keep that, that Spanish language piece um, which is a great background to have, especially in communicating with, with students and their parents. Um, but so since I realized I wanted to stay in higher education, I went back for my graduate degree in higher education administration. Um, and at the time, once I finished my graduate program, initially um, the first opportunities that opened them up to myself was in student financial services and student financial aid. Um, I always knew I wanted to end up in it, academic advising. I wanted to be student facing and, and, you know, be within student services. So opportunity at the time, I was like, all right, I'm just going to take advantage of this, get in, get my foot in the door um, at a, you know, at a college and work through there. So I was in financial aid from really from 2008 up until about 2012. Um, I was always happy when I could help students, but it wasn't the best environment to help students in terms of talking about finances. That's always, those are always tough conversations. Um, I found my way, you know, I was able to navigate those conversations and hopefully be helpful to parents and to students with that. But as soon as in 2012, my boss said, hey, there's an advising position open up in mechanical engineering. Um, I think you should go for it because even my manager knew at the time, I loved working with students, but I wanted to be in academic advising. So my my boss really my supported me for applying for that position, and um, timing worked out. Um, that it was an internal hire, and I was like, "Yes, I'm I'm in advising." So I've been in academic academic advising since. So um, worked with engineering students for from 2012 to 2019, and just moved over to working with health profession students. So. Definitely, I'm where I want to be now. I'm happy I got here. <laughs> yeah, you can, your enthusiasm, I think, shines through. And it's great that you were able to make that transition. And I know that Matt mentioned in your bio, I suppose, around um, Nakata and you're becoming increasingly involved. Maybe you could tell us and listeners how you, I suppose, initially got involved with Nakata. We're, we're coming off the, the back of uh, Global Advising Week when we're recording this. So that could be interesting for listeners. Oh, yeah. So Nakata. So uh, initially it was really, it was my motivating myself to get involved. So uh, when I first started in academic advising, um, 
I was lucky enough to be in an institution that supported membership um, in Nakata. So that was the first step there. Um, but at the time, as with many new advisors, I was very much inundated with the day-to-day, I need to get through helping students, let's do the transactional registration, all that fun stuff that we all know about. Um, so really wasn't um, until about a, a year or two years into advising where I was like, hey, I need to stop, obviously help students, but I also need to develop myself professionally. How do I do that? Hey, Nakata, what's up? <laughs> um, so it was really, I think my first taste, bigger taste, was I attended one of the Region 2 conferences. Um, in, it was 2014 or 2015. And that's where I got to meet fellow you know, Nakata members from around Region 2, um, got to see a lot of great presentations, especially I went through like the advisor development and training track in terms of the presentations. Um, but it was really what really motivated me was meeting advisors, not only at my current institution, but outside of my current institution and seeing what everyone else is doing and really honing in on, oh, my God, that sounds that sounds great. Let me let me focus on that. Right. Um so it was really through the the Region Two conference, and then after that, I was like, "What else can I do?" It was that was my that was my gateway into Nakata was that Region Two conference. Um, so I was like, "Yes, let me review some proposals. Let me do a book review." Um, and now I'm working on a blog post with a, a group of advisor friends. Um, so yeah, it's really all about just putting yourself out there, and hopefully you have the supportive. Uh, advising office and, and manager to to put, give you that little push as well and to provide that support in developing yourself professionally. Yeah, and, and so you're serving in the training development advising community. So let's say there's a new advisor, whether that's a new advisor mm-hmm. that you meet at an Akata conference or at Temple. What advice would you give new advisors that are starting out in their roles? Yeah, so kind of kind of like what I went through um, sharing my experience in terms of there's more to advising than just forms and registration and add drop and withdrawal and all that the all those transactional pieces. I would I would say for new advisors to really focus on and Nakata has done a great job with this, focus on the three core competencies, right? Not just the transactional, the informational piece. Focus on the conceptual piece, right? What is advising? Where did it start? Take a look at the history of it. You know, why are we doing this? And also big for me, especially recently, is the relational piece, right? We're doing this for a reason. We're helping students for a reason. And you're in advising for a specific reason because you want to be here. So really for any new advisor to, one, take the time to get outside of the the day-to-day routine to focus on themselves focus on their colleagues, how they can support them, um, and focus on, you know, the opportunities that a, an organization like Nakata can offer you um, just so you can grow within the field. And by better developing yourself, you're only helping your students in the end as well. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I suppose one of the things that uh, I'm interested in, in digging into a little bit more is what we discussed at the start was, you know, you got in touch with uh, Craig McGill, having heard him on the podcast. And I'm just wondering, what was it that Craig said that, uh, you know, inspired you to, to get in touch? What was the area that he was talking about that you were particularly interested in? Yeah. So really looking again, looking at academic advising, um, if you think about it, right, you want to be a doctor, you go through specific degree programs, 
to get your med, you know, uh, your MD or, or, or PhD or your MD, right? Same thing with legal, same thing with some business programs. In terms of academic advising, there is no one way to become an advisor. And as soon as I stopped and thought about that, I, and this is something I've, I've actually, now that I think about it, I've been doing for a while. Any person I meet who's in advising, one of the first questions I'm going to ask you is, who are you? What's your background? How did you get to where you are? So for me, it's really all about one, you know, f- talking to different people, getting to know their stories because there's, you know, different stories out there. Everyone is unique in terms of academic advising. That's what makes us unique, interesting um, enough. Um, but two, it's really about how do we elevate academic advising to that professional status, you know, of you know, along the lines of, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be an academic advisor, right? How do we elevate our, what we do, professionalize it, you know, give it some, some, you know, academic credentials so that others are aware that, oh, hey, this is a field that we should take a look at and we can benefit from, right? You know, we work a lot in our roles with faculty members, you know, they get to where they are by certain degrees because they're teaching in certain disciplines. I want people outside of advising, like faculty, for example, to see the benefit of working with us as advisors. So I think what Craig is working on in terms of that professionalization piece is is great because that's what we need. We need to get that recognition um, for, you know, so people can learn from us. Yeah. And I guess that's going to be like an ongoing thing and something that we have to continuously work at. Um, But then I think eventually we'll, we'll get there. And, and, during parts of this, we actually are there right now. So, but so, so many different aspects to advising, yeah. but, you know, great advice as well. And again, we're glad that you were able to reach out to Craig because he's kind of like, we see him as like a point person in a lot of this. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> can we talk about going back to like your time right now at Temple or at Drexel? You know, you've had various student populations that, that you've um, advised can you talk about that transition for going from Drexel to Temple and going from advising mechanical engineering students to health profession students and what that transition was like for you? And, you know, was there a learning curve? How did you adjust to all that? Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, get definitely going from the engineering at Drexel, which is a private institution, to health professions at Temple, which is a public institution. Um, that was adjustment number one, going from a private to a public, a lot of different um in terms of policies, you know, some policies are similar, some are very different. So navigating the policies at the different institutions. Um, and two, for me, again, because I'm coming from a, a liberal arts background, I don't have a degree in engineering. I don't have a health professions degree. Um, for me, the the adjustment piece is one, learning the ins and outs of the curriculum, so that informational piece. But then two, learning the support system for the students that I'm working with, um, faculty, obviously. So getting to know the faculty within the health professions um, department, you know, who work with our students, where they come from, the courses they teach, getting to know them, getting to know the the campus resources at Temple. Um, again, there's a shell of, of similar um, resources at different institutions that you go to, but each school is going to do it differently, right? So learning the ins and outs of the resources, specifically at Temple, whether it's career services, whether it's the um, Office of Disability Resources, 
um, anything related to tutoring or academic success, coaching or success, um, all that different stuff. So that's it's really about navigating the different policies, procedures, who's who, you know, obviously getting to know the key players um, at Temple um, within the college that I work in and outside of the college that I work in. Um, so it's really those those adjustment pieces you need to make sure that you are you're checking all of those off to better help the students. Dan, I'm wondering, um, and I don't know whether there would have been, but since the outbreak of COVID and, and given that you work with student health professionals, has has that had an impact on the the students and their outlook and your work? I know, obviously, look, we've, we've all gone online and that's had an impact, but I'm wondering about the cohort that you deal with specifically yeah so in within the health professions so our major is really built to prepare students for professional programs like med school uh physician assistant schools um in talking with my my student cohort especially since the pandemic and everything that's happened for a lot if not all the students that i work with it's solidified their choice of their major um so a lot of students are saying, yes, I'm doing, I know I wanted to do this to help people initially, but especially because of what's currently going on, I want to do it even more so. How do I get there? How, how do I get to that nursing position? How do I become a, a physician assistant? So if anything like this ever happens again, I can give back to, to the students or to the, sorry, to the community. Um, so it, it's definitely solidified the major choice for a lot of students that I work with. And we're already starting to see an uptick in admits for the fall term um, in terms of with even just within the College of Public Health itself. I think a lot of incoming students are realizing that they want to be able to help and give back, um, especially with what's going on. So they're looking at public health related programs. Um, so I know our college is actually up in numbers, which is kind of nice. Um, you know, at Temple University. And for the students for the spring term, did was there any changes that Temple made to any of the, the policies during the semester, like grading policies, things like that? Yeah, so um, we went uh, remote starting, actually, uh, shockingly enough, St. Patty's Day, so March 17th. Um, so for the remainder of the spring semester, which ended April 27th, um, students had the credit, no credit option. Um, which they had until April 27th, the end of the semester, to decide on. Um, they also did extend the course withdrawal deadline. Um, initially, it's usually at the end of week nine of the semester, but they extended it until April 27th as well. Um, so that was a, a piece that we as advisors, we needed to make sure to know the update in the policy and the impacts. So especially for the credit, no credit option, and especially for the cohort that I advise, um, again, a lot of our students are going on to graduate professional programs. So we needed to be able to be confident in having those conversations with students saying, hey, really think about if you do want to take the credit, no credit option, um, think about how it may play out with future graduate programs that you're applying for. Um, so, yeah, there there was that credit, no credit option and course withdrawal extension. Dan, this might be putting you on the spot a little bit, but you, you, you one of your areas of interest is around the professionalization of advising 
And I suppose, do you have any specific plans that you are, want to enact in, in the future um, at Temple? Well, I mean, I would love, in a, if I had all the resources, all, all the funding and all the support in the world, I would love for Temple to have a EDD program or PhD program in academic advising. I don't want to step on KSU to, KSU's toes um, or to so, enact some sort of uh certificate program, something, you know, in terms of credentials that we can, you know, support our advising colleagues, at least at Temple, um, I would love to have, you know, those types of credentials and learning opportunities available for for my colleagues and myself. Um, my plan is anyway, I, I know in the future, I'm looking to do a doctoral program at some point, not right now. Um, I'm actually playing the supportive role because my wife is finishing out her doctorate as of next year. Um, and we have a four-year-old daughter, so we're gonna, I'm gonna wait a little bit. So we got some stuff going on right now. Um, but I know eventually I, I'm gonna pursue a, a doctoral degree. I'm looking at an EDD. I have looked at the program that um, KSU is offering as well in academic advising. Um, Cause I know I'm in advising, I'm gonna be here. It's for me, it's just a really a matter of what I wanna focus my research on, right? What are the points that are interesting to me that I wanna do a, a much deeper dive into? And what can I produce that's gonna help others out there in terms of academic advising? Um, yeah, so I would love to have doctoral programs um, specifically in act academic advising at Temple. That'd be great. Yeah, in case you has their inaugural uh, cohort starting uh, in the fall. So shout out to them on that. Now, when you were at uh, Drexel, yeah. you were uh, the leading, uh, your leading advisor training and development there. Um, what kind of efforts uh, were made at Drexel when you were doing that? And does any of that uh, also continue in Dakota? Yeah. So, um, so with Drexel, we, we were kind of starting out in terms of actually starting from scratch in terms of um, getting together as an advising group university wide, you know, advising groups were meeting within their own colleges, but there wasn't, wasn't really much going on university wide to support advisors as a whole and their development. Um, so one of the first things that we did in the advisor training development group at Drexel was we put together what we called like advising 101. Um, it was a session for all new advisors. We did it every six months. Um, so we wanted to make sure that advisors were starting on the same page with the same knowledge and kind of starting as a cohort as well. Um, so that was one of the pieces we did. We also um, launched a essentially an advisor assessment survey um, to advisors for advisors. So we wanted to get feedback from advisors on, you know, strengths that we were having at that point as a university and, and kind of some areas of improvement that we could do within advising and how we could support advisors. Um, so that was really the, the big inaugural push that we were doing at Drexel in terms of the training and development efforts um, within when I was at Drexel within the College of Engineering. What I was doing specifically was building up their um, Blackboard BB Learn resources. Um, I was building a whole advisor training development curriculum um, for advisors in the College of Engineering, um, even down to things like curriculum quizzes and, and fun stuff like that. Um, and then in terms of so navigating to my current involvement with Nakata and their advisor training and development community, um, it's really been more on 
right now the supportive role in terms of um, reviewing conference proposals. That's what I'm, I'm currently, you know, look with that community involved with, um, as well as um, I've also just recently signed up to be a mentor in the Region 2 mentorship program. Um, so again, I want to help give back to newer advisors who are just starting in the field um, and have that one-on-one -on -one relationship and give them, you know, feedback and, and, and tips and stuff like that. Giving back certainly seems to be a theme in a lot of what you do, and that's great to hear. And I know one of the things is that you're a proud Penn State alum and you're involved in the Penn State Alum Leadership Association. Um, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more. I think in Ireland, certainly uh, alumni associations are still relatively new, still developing. Um, so I'm certainly interested in hearing, you know, I, I, Penn has such a huge alum uh, all over the world. We've got lots of Penn alum here in Ireland as well. So I'm inter interested in hearing a little bit more um, about that and about your involvement. Yeah, yeah. So so Penn State Alumni Association, we uh, we are the, the largest in the, in the world. Um, so currently, um, so Penn State has actually 24 different locations throughout the state of Pennsylvania. Um, I did a couple of years at the Penn State Abington location before I moved up to University Park. Um, I current, so each campus location has an alumni society um, in addition to the, the full alumni association itself. Um, so I currently serve as the president for the Penn State Abington Alumni Society. Um, we're a board of about 15 members. And what we do is essentially is we support the students specifically at Penn State Abington by giving back our time and helping them out with um, things related to career services or new student recruitment for Penn State and Penn State Abington. Um, but besides that, I, because I'm president of the Abington Alumni Society, I also have a seat on the Alumni Council of the Penn State Alumni Association. Um, so Alumni Council is about 110 members. Um, we're essentially the governing board for the Alumni Association. Um, and a lot of our work for the council is done through committee. So for the council, I'm specifically on the membership experience committee. So what we do is we, we look at our current membership benefits. Um, we obviously we look at ways on how they can improve. Um, but a part of our alumni association is people who have become what are called lifelong members. So they've paid a one time fee and they're a member for life. So a piece that we're starting to look at now is um, through the membership committee is really those lifelong members. All right. They paid their due. But how do we keep them engaged? So we're kind of looking at different loyalty programs that we can, you know, create and come up with to make that group specifically feel supported and, and connected to Penn State because they're already lifelong members. What else can we do? And Penn State, we interviewed David Smith from Penn State not too long ago. And so many great things Penn State has been doing and is continuing to do. Um, so it makes me jealous a little bit. <laughs> but you were talking about you know, signing up to be a mentor within uh, your region. Are there any mentors within advising or at Temple or at uh, within Nakata that um, have had an influence uh, on you and that you want to give a shout out to? Oh, yeah. And I think I know the first name. You probably know the first name I'm going to shout out to. But uh, yeah, it's funny because I'm so besides being a mentor for Region 2, I'm actually currently a mentee 
in the Temple Mentorship Program. And I'd love to give a shout out to my mentor, Gavin Farber, um, who also happens to be the chair for the Advisor Training Development Advising Community for Nakata. Um, I've been, uh, so I started at Temple in November um, and Gavin and I started meeting in December as part of the mentorship program. But I love, I love meeting with Gavin. We usually do it over coffee, which we do virtually over coffee now through Zoom. Um, but yeah, I, I love uh, Gavin in terms of getting his insight into um, Nakata, you know, what, what he's done. He's the one who actually um, kind of motivated me to, to take a step into the writing for Nakata piece and, and doing a book review. Because I know I, I've always wanted to write something. I just didn't know where to start. Gavin's like, Gavin was like, do a book review. I was like, great. That's awesome. That's so easy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely shout out to, to Gavin for being a great mentor, um, at my time at Temple so far. And Dane, I suppose, um, you know, I, you look, we, we've discussed a, a whole multitude of things, but I know one of the areas that we had covered on, on a previous podcast that you had been interested in was technology and utilizing technology to connect with students. Mm-hmm. So are there things that you are doing or that you want to do um, or, or how do you see technology, I suppose, helping to to connect with with students? Yeah. And, and talking about shout outs, I'd love to give a shout out there to Eric Soler, who I, you've had a, as a guest as well in the podcast. And he's he's definitely been a resource for me in terms of looking into what else can we do within advising to connect with our students the area that he has come from in his background recently was chatbots, right? So I think chatbot, chatbots is a way to, we were talking before about the transactional advising piece. Chatbots is a great way to do that transactional advising so that we as advisors have more time to do the developmental advising that we really want to do and, and help our students. So I think simple tech, newer technologies like that, like the chat box feature, um, Obviously, now a lot of us are getting used to, to things like Zoom, and we've found out quickly that we can do this, even if at a future point when we go back to campus, it's still a technology that I think we have now in our tool bags um, that you know we can use for students who may not be able to come to campus to meet with us in person, or if we want to talk to prospective students. So having the the experience with Zoom now, I think is very beneficial. You know, obviously other schools use different technologies there. Um, but actually, so speaking of podcasts, I don't know if you all, if you saw there was a, a webinar this morning out of the business major advising, advising community um, talking about podcasts specifically for marketing, for podcasts geared towards students, right? So you do a podcast within your college. So I would, you know, do a podcast for College of Public Health. I would interview different people from around Temple and within the college. But the main audience is it's geared towards your students that you're working with. Um, So I think that's another easy way. You know, obviously, people love podcasts. I love this podcast here. And it's, you know, that's another way just to connect with your audience virtually. Right. you got to so you essentially you got to meet the students where they are what are they using some people are using tiktok right so yeah yeah there's technology can be very beneficial so a couple of months ago we were talking about like appreciative advising and how in in your office you kind of look at it from a student standpoint and viewpoint in terms of okay if i'm the student and i'm talking to my advisor in this case you 
what's what's in the office what what do they fixate on how can they get to know you as uh like not just as an advisor but a human like what what are your likes but also you're strategic on what you place in your office um as well as like campus resources things that are in viewpoint to the student now that you know right now we're uh, most of us are online working remotely the fact that Hopefully we're back in, in the fall, if anything, back on campus. But if not, how can we, um, as advisors, what what can we do when we're doing Zoom or some type of um, uh, online format with appointments? How can we still connect with with our students? Right. Yeah. So one, I mean, one definitely quick tip is I love using different uh, Zoom virtual backgrounds. Um, I ended up knowing I was going to be working remotely. I ended up taking a picture of the cork board that I have behind my desk with all those different campus resources. Um, and I've used that as one of my uh, virtual backgrounds when meeting with students, um, if I had to have a good enough wall that you to use as a green screen. Um, but two, now that we're, you know, obviously we're working from home and we're letting students into our lives and it's really just rolling with it. And, you know, that for me, that's just adding to that relationship that I'm building with the students that I that I advise in terms of they're getting to know a really good glimpse of who I am, my home life. They hear my dogs. They see my wife. They see my daughter who hops onto different Zoom meetings at different points. Um, so it's really it, it's allowing students into your life to, to build that relationship, to build that trust, to build that respect, because they not only see you as their just their advisor, they see you as a person um, who's also going through, you know, this pandemic and, you know, weathering it out however we can at home. And for listeners, Dane, you talked about letting students know about uh, your life. But what are what about you outside of advising? What uh, what are what are your interests? Because uh, because li- listeners can't cannot see the screen, so they they're not able to participate in this. So t- let them know. Oh, geez, outside of advising, where do I start? Um, besides um, spending time with my wonderful wife and daughter. Um, I, I love the, my four-year-old daughter already has seen every Star Wars movie. So Star Wars is definitely one thing. Um, I know Matt and I had been talking about my love of comic books, specifically DC. I'm getting to reread a lot of my collection now that I have a little bit more time at home. Um, cooking, um, because I have such a varied background in terms of my family heritage. Um, I learned a lot growing up in terms of food from a lot of my grandparents. So I love cooking with my wife. And also now, even my four-year-old daughter, she's getting into cooking and baking. Um, So just being able to see her learn, you know, take that on. And because that's a big part of my family heritage and, you know, passing on what I know to hers has been awesome. Um, In the past, you have tennis. Uh, I played tennis as an undergraduate student. Um, I have a kayak sitting out back, which I, you know, I I have more time on the weekends now, so I can I can kayak when it's nice out. You know, luckily it is nice out. Um, So yeah, uh, movies, Star Wars, comic books, family, all that fun stuff. Food, yeah, yeah. It seems like uh, in this quarantine, like baking became like a huge thing, and I just see people posting and like baking their new breads that they're that they're doing. (laughs) Yeah, we actually the other day we just made a six tier rainbow cake, which. We never would have tempted before, but we're like, hey, we've got the time to learn and and try it out. Yeah, definitely. Baking, uh, learning to do haircuts, all that that good stuff. (laughs) Now, uh, you were talking about uh, a couple months back about um, letting your geek show and Mm -hmm. and using it to connect with your students. How do you do that? 
let's see one quick example so in the past when i've taught uh first year seminars um the first thing that students will see on that first year seminar syllabus is the yoda quote do or do not there is no try right one it's showing them hey i love star wars right you know let your geek flag fly right but it also for me it's a way to connect with students um, especially Star Wars. Let's just say there's a lot of Star Wars fans out there. And as soon as a Star Wars fan sees that you're a Star Wars fan, that's their entry into, oh, what's your favorite movie? Ooh, who's your favorite character? What did you think about the, the latest trilogy or the prequels? All that fun stuff. So for me, it's a way to, again, connect with my students on a level outside of just talking about advising and the day-to-day -day registration and all that sort of stuff. It, it adds to that relationship building piece. Um, so to let students know who I am, my geek side, I embrace my geek side. Like I'm, I'll talk about geek all the time, right? You know, I have a Back to the Future shirt on that I'm currently wearing. Um, I'm happy to talk about Marty, Marty McFly with anyone that is willing to. Um, so yeah, again, it, it really all adds to that relationship building piece with your students. So the Back to the Future remake, what are your thoughts? <laughs> no. <laughs> that, <laughs> there, the, uh, there should not be one, <laughs> is my thought on that. <laughs> the original trilogy, especially the first two, um, third one was good, enjoy, enjoyed it a lot. But I think the or original trilogy with Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd. We're good. I'm good. <laughs> Don't need to see any more. <laughs> well, and with Star Wars, so you're talking about being an avid fan. Um, and, you know, you, if you know someone's a Star Wars fan, then you can talk about your favorite movie. Although I think the prequels, uh, that can be a, a, a changer in terms of how people react, depending if you say you like them or not, which, <laughs> I mean, for the most part, I mean, they, they, they get panned pretty bad. But the first one especially... But I think the first one's not as bad as we all claim it that it is. So here's here's the thing that I've taken from the first one and kind of an interesting twist that something to give it a different light. Think about this. Is Jar Jar Binks a Sith behind the scenes controlling everything? Is he intentionally clumsy? Food for thought. Everyone is quick to dismiss the prequels because of Jar Jar Binks, for example, like a character like that. But it's interesting, you know, initially when I saw them, I was like, oh, way too much CGI. Why Jar Jar Binks? But now having a four-year-old daughter who's going through the movies with me, it's interesting to see her take on the movies. I can, I can see the entertainment value that they have. And I'm glad that we were told the backstory of Anakin and how he became Darth Vader, which I think is a, is a great piece to get insight to. There could have been better things done and a better way of doing it, but I think overall it does have some some core values and insights that are that we can take from it. Um, and I know when when you ask, you know, what is your favorite movie? A lot of people are quick to say Empire Strikes Back. I'm actually more of a Return of the Jedi fan. Um, I like how it, it nicely wraps up the original trilogy um, in Episode Six um, in terms of really showing how Vader was the one, you know, to bring balance to the force um, when he, you know, initially, spoiler alert, 
through the through the, the the Chancellor Palpatine over the side in the Death Star. If you haven't seen it yet, it's been you know it came out in 1983. So you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's actually Return of the Jedi is actually my favorite of the original trilogy. Did you hear what uh, Dave Filoni said about uh, Episode One with Duel of the Fates? No, I did not. Ooh. So a lot of times, um, you know, from his viewpoint, and you know, and you hear this too from a lot is lightsaber fight with uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Darth Maul it's a lot of people say oh that was the best part of the movie and it was a cool fight scene great light lightsaber fight um but he comes from a standpoint of like if you really think about it you know what's at stake he said is like really how Anakin is going to turn out you know because Qui-Gon in a sense was his father figure and Qui-Gon kind of saw things you know, in terms of the Jedi what, versus what the Jedi Council saw. Um, so he was kind of way ahead of everyone, and Yoda caught up in Episode 2. And so he looks at Duel of the Fates as really, um, you can see it reverberate throughout the entire Star Wars saga. And it's essentially, okay, is if Anakin loses his father figure, Qui-Gon, you kind of see now that's he needed that father figure. Um, and that's why he, then he kind of turned out the way he did. Because Obi Wan, in a sense, didn't wasn't necessarily like liked Anakin. He he was teaching and took Anakin under his wing mm. because that was his promise to Qui Gon. Eventually, they became brothers. But what Anakin needed was a father. Interesting. I like that. Yeah, too. Agreed. Like so, if Qui Gon was the father figure in Episode Two, Anakin loses his mother. His mother, right? So that's a mm-hmm. that, that accelerates him on his path to the dark side. Um, but yeah, I, I agree too. Like Obi-Wan was, even though he was doing the the best that he could at the time and fulfilling a promise to Qui-Gon, he was not ready to take on Anakin as a Padawan. Nuh-uh. So, nope. I mean, even like us as advisors, you know, going back there, you, we need to develop ourselves before we help yourself, before you can help your students, right? So like uh, Obi-Wan was not at that point, you know, in episode one where he could take on Anakin as a Padawan. So, yeah. And definitely. But in that case, too, a lot of times we're forced into something and we just have to adapt the best we can. Exactly. But I know we could talk about this for the <laughs> longest time. But I think it's a great way to, to end end this interview. And Dane, it's it's been a pleasure. You know, it's a long time coming to have you on the podcast. I'm glad it finally worked out. And I don't know we've gone over a lot of great information. I think listeners will will be able to uh, have the opportunity to to think about and and implement as well. Yes, thank you very much for having me. And I'm going to keep on being the number one fanboy of the Adventures in Advising podcast and promoting it to everyone that I talk to. We appreciate that, and I think you have certainly given us uh, plenty of food for thought in today's interview. And we appreciate you like being kind of giving us a, a window into your world. And I think listeners will really enjoy that as well. So thanks very much, Dane. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Fun, wonderful interview there with with Dane. And yeah, like we said early on in that interview, it was months in the making. Uh, Dane's kind of been one of our uh, main listeners of the podcast since the beginning. And so we are very glad to have that work out and finally get him on the podcast because a lot of great information that that he was able to share with us and for listeners. And so next up, we have Jamie Zamian, who works at Sonoma State University. He's the Senior Director of Student Success and Advising. This is also another one that was uh, a couple months in the making. Um, as we'll go into the interview, you'll find out that 
Uh, we're supposed to interview Jamie at the California Collaborative Advising and Counseling Conference that he was uh, the chair for. And then unfortunately, like many conferences, was canceled due to COVID-19. This was a conference that was supposed to be back in March. But, you know, we, we made it work, got everything rescheduled. And I think um, this interview, we it worked out because we were able to share, he was able to share a lot with us uh, regarding his time at Sonoma and a lot of fun, fun little nuggets, as Colin likes to say, of information that, that you might be able to learn and use. So here we go. Jamie Zamian is the Senior Director of Student Success and Advising at Sonoma State University, where he oversees student success initiatives, centralized academic advising and transitional programs, new student orientation, the Career Center, and if that wasn't enough, also student success technologies. He is passionate about removing barriers to help students graduate on time and start a career in addition to supporting students to continue their education in an area they are passionate about. Prior to coming to Sonoma State University, Jamie has had stops at Idaho State University, the University of Minnesota, and Briarcliff University. At each of these institutions, he has worked closely with advising, retention, persistence, and graduation initiatives. He got his start in higher education teaching English at a university in Thailand. Jamie is currently working on completing a doctorate of education in educational leadership, higher education administration from Idaho State University. His dissertation is researching the impact of participating in a living learning community on four-year and six-year graduation rates, as well as the equity gaps for underrepresented minority students and Pell-eligible students. Jamie earned his Master's of Arts in Educational Leadership from St. Mary's University of Minnesota and his Bachelor of Arts in History from St. John's University in Minnesota. Jamie is happily married to his wife, Juan, and loves spending time with his two daughters, Nina and Maya. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be here. And I got to say, congratulations on 2,000 downloads. Ooh, yes, thank you. It is an honor to be uh, here at the fastest growing academic advising podcast <laughs> in the world. Thank you. Well, we are delighted to have the opportunity to speak to you. I mean, what a, a bio, what a background. And the fact that you have uh, international experience, I'm really interested to, to talk to you. Uh, about that, but you have so many facets, and we'll definitely dig into those. But I suppose to to begin, how how are things in this uh, COVID nineteen world with you, and I suppose at uh, Sonoma State? Yeah, it's uh, it's been a whirlwind. It's hard to believe we've been shelter in place for what sixty days or something by now, and just it's been an amazing experience both positive and negative. It's been uh, very difficult. I know our students and our staff have really struggled with it, but at the same time, from an organizational standpoint, we've been able to to remove so many barriers for our students over the past two months that things that just didn't get done because they were low priority, but with the switch to being remote and the needs of our students in a remote setting, just expedited some of that change. And so it's been positive that we've been able to remove barriers for students during this, while at the same time trying to balance that understanding of everything that everyone is going through. So um, I hope that answered it. Yeah, and it's almost like we're, we're taking every, everything day to day. It almost seems like every day there's something new that that's coming up. But before we maybe continue talking about the future, maybe we start talking about also prior to this, you know, maybe we're going back to, to March. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Absolutely. So 
So you were the chair of the steering committee chair for the fifth annual California Collaborative Advising and Counseling Conference. It was scheduled for March. This is when uh, that time we were supposed to do your interview at the conference. That's right. Uh, and unfortunately, just like many other conferences and many other gatherings, it was canceled. But this was, you know, in, in March where it was still unknown, like, are, would we still have the conference? Would we not? Maybe walk us through those those last couple of weeks before the actual cancellation of the conference. Um, you know, what was going on, discussions, uh, you know, that were you were having uh, with various other uh, groups and individuals at Sonoma. What happened during that time? It was it was stressful, Matt and Colm. Um, it was a lot of sleepless nights because we were making this conference, or playing this conference with the, like you said, it was an unknown time. And we had 350 folks from around the state, the country, and we even had some people from internationally coming to the conference for the first time. So trying to balance the safety with the unknown was literally every hour I was in a phone call or a meeting with, by then we were already in our emergency operating uh, center mode, our EOC mode. So with EOC, with um, our risk management team, and trying to look at all the different scenarios that were out there. Um, we were looking at all the different other conferences that were happening in, in the state to see what they were doing at the, around the same time. And some of them were canceling, some of them were holding out and trying to make it happen. And we're, we were just trying to balance everything. So it was just a lot of unknown. It was, it was stressful. But in the end, I think we made the decision about a week and a half before to cancel because we wanted to make sure safety was the priority. Um, we were all disappointed. I know, um, a lot of people were disappointed, but the main thing was the safety. The main thing was then to ensure that uh, staff and participants were, were wouldn't get stuck here or anything like that. So, But then, of course, we were in EOC mode, and so it wasn't a traditional then making a decision. We had to take that up to the EOC, and they had to make the final decision. Even though this was not a Sonoma State uh, program or a conference, because we were hosting it, they had to have input into that. So that actually slowed it down for about another four or five days. And so it got pretty close when the official notice went out. And I think that added a lot of additional stress for the steering committee, but also for participants who are wondering what's going on with it. I just want to say though, like, excellent job for, you know, to you and and Priscilla for all the work that you did on that conference. I mean, it was on track to being a fantastic conference, you know, sold out, and great speakers, panels, everything that that was scheduled. And, you know, and, and, you know, that's, I was, co-chairing the region nine conference so that's right you know i know how much work goes into that and you know yes it was a bummer but like you said i guess it's the safety was the first priority um but i know that that it would have been a fantastic conference and so at region nine i was excited to go down and relax and rejuvenate after (laughs) hosting ours oh i was looking forward to going to sonoma and then having you come to palm (laughs) springs It, it was it would have been amazing so we can always imagine how it would have been exactly (laughs) Um, Jamie, I might take you back even further to, I suppose, how you got into uh, advising and higher ed, and maybe you could talk us through that particular journey. Yeah, and it wasn't uh, just a straight journey either. Um, So I I went to a small liberal arts school in Minnesota called St. John's University, and I got my uh, degree in history. And I studied uh, a concentration in, in Asian history. Uh, and so I uh, 
I, I was supposed to go and volunteer for a year in China. And this is back in 2003. So if you want to do the math, that's how old I am. And um, But that's the exact same year SARS came out. And so SARS came out in the exact same province where I was supposed to be volunteering. And so it got canceled. And so I ended up still wanting to, to explore Asia and, and, and learn more about the history. So I ended up going to Thailand and I ended up getting a, a job at a university in Thailand teaching English. And I stayed there for five years. And I knew I wanted to come back to the United States and get a master's. And my original plan was to become a high school teacher. And, and, and so I came back and I got involved with a small school, Briarcliff University. And I was involved in the, with the athletics teams there. And I was advising the athletes there. And one of the things I noticed that the athletes that were coming to the small school were very much underprepared for college work. And a lot of them were getting DQ'd after their first or second trimester with like a 0.0 GPA. And it was a private school and um, they would go home with twenty, thirty thousand dollars worth of debt. And I thought, this isn't right. We've got to be able to do more for our students and so our student athletes, especially. And so um, the advising expand from beyond just what courses it takes to stay eligible to really the holistic advising piece. And then one thing I love about advising is that it's a puzzle. A student has a problem. The advisors are the people who are they have connections all over campus. We know, all right, so if there's a financial issue. We, we've got a contact in the financial aid office or the or the um, Broussard's office, and we can we just got this puzzle. We can solve puzzles. And so I, I fell in love with that aspect that we could solve problems or help students solve problems that otherwise they wouldn't know where to go. And so I, I went from there to University of Minnesota, did some more advising, at, for, especially with student athletes as well at a, at a Division One level. And that was very, you know, difficult too, because you're dealing with a lot higher uh, compliance re issues behind that. And um, but it was the same thing. We had students coming in from all over the country, a lot of first generation students, especially when you think of football, basketball uh, track, where you generally get more of your first generation, historically low income students who are struggling at the same way at a, at a research university. And so, again, how can we put a puzzle together to help solve some of these issues to make sure that they're successful, not only on the court or on the field, but also more importantly in the classroom? Because as we would say at the University of Minnesota and Firecliff, everyone's going pro in something most likely other than their sport. So we've got to become a professional at what our major and what our career is going to be. And speaking of student athletes, not everyone really understands a lot of the pressures that student athletes have or some of the barriers that they have. Can you can you talk about that? Uh, yeah. I, you know, obviously, when you're the, the big one is just time constraints. Right. And especially when you're looking at Division One, Division Two levels, mm -hmm. um, they're literally putting in 40 to 60 hours a week minimum. Um, they're up at 5 a.m., sometimes 430 uh, having workouts before class, then breakfast, then class, then study sessions, then film sessions and back to practice, dinner, study sessions to bed. I mean, so at those higher levels, those are, it's extremely regimented. So there's no time for, well, there's time, but not very much time for, to get involved in other ways on campus, right? To build other communities, um, to, to have a sense of belonging outside of maybe your athletic village. And so things that a lot of the other students get to participate in, student athletes don't get to participate in. Uh, you know, the other thing is a lot of them do, and by a lot, I mean, uh, you know, the, the the revenue sports, a lot of them are first-generation students. They don't have that support system at home. Um, they see on TV, they see cousins and friends about students, about our student athletes who go pro and make millions of dollars, and they get pressure from folks around them that everyone who goes to college to play football, basketball, will eventually become a millionaire in that sport when the reality is it's less than 1%. And so trying to then help them get, you know, 
find a mentor, find someone who can help show them, again, how to be professional in something other than basketball, football, track, golf, tennis, hockey, etc. And Jimmy, maybe continuing on from that, I think one of the things that you're clearly passionate about is uh, removing barriers to student success. And I suppose you touched on it earlier around the th- this period of time ha- has allowed you to, you know, remove some of the barriers. But what are some of the kind of common barriers that you see in, in your role? Um, and how do you go about, I suppose, removing those? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot. And it's, it's based on that our industry of higher education hasn't changed much in 400 years. Um, and it's changed a little bit, but we still have a lot of historical barriers put in place for the students who need to have those removed. And so, um, you know, we, the big ones that we look at at Sonoma State University and that have kind of been things that we've been working on for a while that have actually started to happen and change are one, our registration holds. It just seems that we put registration holds on students for almost anything these days, and they don't know how to remove it. And we don't do a very good job of it communicating what those holds are, why they need to take care of them, and how to take care of them. And so I think we lose so many students because they have a registration hold for maybe, you know, I'll pick on advising because we're talking about advising, an, a, an advising hold. For, they're supposed to meet with an advisor. Maybe they met with an advisor, but the advisor forgot to remove it. They don't know how to get it removed. They don't come back the next semester. Or maybe they have a small parking ticket of $40 um, that they can't pay because they're a first-generation student. They're working just to survive. That food, that money goes to paying for their rent and their food. And so they can't pay the $40, and now we're not going to re- have them continue. I mean, is their education, their future not worth a $40, like, forgiveness? And so um, registration holds are a big one. And just the financial understanding and literacy of our students is so important. And it's a barrier that we don't do a very good job of teaching them on. We don't do a very good, you know, we have uh, federal requirements of showing students how to take or how to fill out a FAFSA and what that means. And that you, you read a long uh, list of what that you have to repay your loans. But if you're 18 years old and you're a first generation student or your parents didn't go to college or your parents don't speak English, you don't know what this means and you just sign it. And so you don't really quite understand the financial obligations or even how to work around and navigate that stuff. And so, uh, you know, a lot of our students, they work full-time. They go to school full-time. Um, a lot of them have families. And so they're trying to balance all this stuff. And we just have these barriers that we need to help make it easier for them so they can be persistent, be, so they can persist be, and graduate because they are smart enough. They are capable. They have the grit. They have the resiliency. It's just confusing. Yeah, and I think it's also just with not picking on any particular institution, but a lot of times it might be that we're looking at it from the student should already know because we told them at orientation or the catalog online. So everything is there for them to see, but we don't necessarily tell them what exactly it means or put things in layman's terms for them. And, yep. you know, it's, it's something where we really want to look at things from, okay, well, how does the student view it? What should they know? How can we make sure that we're doing our job? You know, I'm going to mess up the the saying, but it's almost like the meaning of a message relies on the receiver, not the sender. So it's like if the person doesn't understand it, then we're not doing our job with explaining it. I don't know if you got it wrong, but I liked it, man. Okay, perfect. <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> but it's true, right? Like, you know, it, it goes back to, you know, what I said, like, historically, you know, universities in, in the United States, particularly, were an elite institution, right? Going back even 100 years ago, only the, you know, white elite people would go to college mostly. And so, those worked back then. Like we would read the catalog because most likely my parents went to school. So they said, would tell me when you go to college, you got to read the catalog. You've got to reach out to your professors and do this, this, and this. So we had a mentor at home. 
I even had a mentor at home. A lot of our students don't have those mentors. And so that's why it gets lost and for so many students. Yeah, I think it's really um, interesting to, to hear, obviously, from um, the the, pers- the perspective over there. It, it can be a, a little bit different in an Irish context. We have our own barriers here, but um, thanks for kind of sharing, you know, what they actually are and, and how to go about removing them, because I do think that it is for students all over the world, it is sometimes things that universities don't even think through, that we're so used to it that we don't stop to go, this this is something that, you know, an outsider mightn't understand. Uh, and it is that because it's always been there. Now, one of the things that might be interesting as well is obviously you're uh, engaged in doctoral research at the, at the moment. Um, could you tell us a, a little bit about that? Yeah, so obviously... Um... I've tied it to the work that I do at Sonoma State University. So that's been a, a nice bonus. Like as you work through your dissertation, it's not like I got to go do something completely different. Um, this is actually like an extension of um, my work. And so I do, I oversee our freshman learning communities, our first year learning communities and our, our living learning communities here. It's part of my, my unit. And so um, we have a very extensive living uh, freshman learning communities at Sonoma State. Over half of our students participate in them. And so we're really been focused, and I'm sure you've talked about this in the past, um, but in the CSU, we have our graduation initiative 2025 uh, to increase graduation rates. And so we've never done a very good job of um, assessing our, our living learning communities to see if they will help students persist to graduate on time. We do a lot of work with just one with FLCs um, is there on the retention basis? So we do a lot of research. Are they coming back the next academic year? And then we do a lot of um, research around FLCs along the lines of student satisfaction. And so how does it fit back into your overall satisfaction with the university? We don't look long-term. And so I really wanted to look and see if participating in a living learning community is a predictor of graduating on time in four to six years. And is it a predictor to helping eliminate the achievement gap or the equity gaps in Sonoma State University? And so that's kind of where I am. I, I haven't actually started my research. I'm collecting the data right now. And then we'll be analyzing it hopefully in a month or so. And then we'll be able to see and and assess actually long-term does participating in these FLCs matter, these living learning communities matter for graduation rates. And then if it does, how can we utilize them to get more students who probably need to get involved in them a little more? Or is there areas where we can cut back on some of the living learning communities and then re- purpose them somewhere else. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, so we interviewed uh, Marion Gabra from UCLA recently, and I think this kind of ties into a lot of this. And, you know, she said that, you know, with policies and procedures, it's black and white, but with the student, it's gray, Yep. you know, and that's kind of the importance of us as advisors or those in an academic advising to help make sense of everything, but making sure that we can help eliminate any barriers that we notice and, you know, whether it's for the individual student or we're trying to do it for everyone on campus. And I guess tying everything in with COVID-19, what has been going on in terms of, you know, you were talking about there might be barriers or barriers that have been lifted because we kind of were forced to in a way uh, during this time. What kind of barriers have been lifted for students during this time and what additional barriers are still there that we can try to work on? Yeah, really good question. Um, a couple of the big ones were just a lo- the policies around grading have been last a little bit, um, especially with credit, no credit. That was a huge um, struggle for our campus to, to get wrap our minds around because 
if we switch the every class to credit no credit that could impact our impacted majors and our students trying to get into an impacted major and so we've really been done a really good job of being able to make that very simple for the students to understand and very flexible and so students who are still trying to get into an impact major like psychology at Sonoma State or sociology, biology, have options now within credit or no credit to still persist towards getting into those majors. But um, there's a little flexibility that in case this change has really been difficult for them, that's not going to affect them negatively. So that's been a big one. Another one has just been the extension of leave of absences. Um that's been a huge one. Um, usually it's one or two semesters we've been trying to, to get longer, especially with COVID-19, because we don't know how long we're going to basically be away. Or if students want to defer admissions, um, what can we do to defer admissions? It's something that we haven't historically done, but something we got to think about doing now for our students. Um, so those have been big. Really, really big one I just remembered. We were able to get most of our forms into a virtual online process. So mm-hmm. at Sonoma State, we used to still use carbon copy paper for forms, and you'd have to walk around campus and sign them and pull them apart. That's you know the angel fire of papers, and um, and then that's how we would make our changes. But we got all of our petitions, all of our withdrawal forms, change of major forms. Everything is now online. Students can go to the registrar's office and and get it done real quick. We were we also removed signatures, so it's a stream more streamlined process um so those have been the couple of big ones you know we're gonna have to look at what are the policies for being reinstated and for coming back to sonoma state university um after leave of absences after withdrawals because we do know we're going to lose some students with this and they're going to take a gap year they're going to go work or they're going to go to a community college for a semester or a year but as they want to come back to sonoma state what kind of processes and barriers can we remove to make that an easy process? Because really, if you want to come back, it's who do I contact? I don't know. Let me start here. And then you kind of get the phone tag and get brought around campus. So we got to we got to make that coming back to Sonoma State a lot easier process. Yeah. And just FYI, because you mentioned Angel Fire. So those listening, if you're not old enough to know what Angel Fire is, it was an internet service that provided uh, like website services. So it was the most amazing thing in the late 90s, early 2000s. And if you Google it, see what the websites look like back then, amazing. Kind of, <laughs> but and that's what carbon copy papers. It was it was the high tech way of uh, getting signatures back in the nineties and eighties. Jamie, I suppose one of the things that a number of institutions are looking at is the reality that semester one for academic year 2020, 2021 is is going to be online, and then. I suppose we we hope that semester two, then you you know we may we may be welcoming students back to campus, all going well, and we might be interested in hearing your thoughts. I suppose on managing those transitions and supporting students through those transitions. Yeah, I mean uh, it's a lot of unknown still, isn't it? Out there, we've got in the California State University system, we at least got an idea of what our fall is going to look like as being like 95% uh, virtual with a couple exceptions based on the type of classes. But I know a lot of our colleagues around the nation world are still trying to figure out and waiting to hear from their universities on what that's going to look like. You know, I think when I look at, you know, a traditional university, and I say traditional is a brick and mortar, right? Students are choosing to come to a California state university or an Idaho state or, or, or anywhere really based on certain re- reasons, right? And generally it's a fit of campus. It's the cost. It is the major. It is the people. 
Um, and that's different than choosing like an online school, like an SNHU or a, uh, um, or an Arizona state online, right? Because it's more the convenience factor. It's, um, I got a lot going on. And so we've got to be able to support our students to bring them back and remember why they chose this institution. So Sonoma state, we're heavily residential. Um, you know, we have a lot, most of our first year students live on campus. Um, we have lots of engagement, like a traditional university. So we have to make sure that the students, even though they're remote, this semester and we're going to be remote in the fall that there's a sense of belonging back to Sonoma and what it means to be a Seawolf. So how can we do that? And advising plays a key part of that. Um, when we're in our traditional old ways of doing things, our, most advisors are the point person for our students. Um, that's the person on campus they pretty much know the most. And so they go to them to ask questions to get things figured out. Now we've got to be able to outreach students from a distance and help bring that sense of belonging of campus to them. And so, you know, with different services being remote, with faculty being remote, um, it makes it more difficult to know how to get a hold of everyone. So that advisor becomes so much more important of that lifeline back to that institution. And so that's something we're really looking at at Sonoma State. And it's a change. It's a different way of advising, right? It's um, We really focus heavily on the holistic aspects of advising because we know that our students, if they're struggling, it's not that they're struggling with the academics. It's most likely something else in their life that's affecting their academically. And so we focus a lot on that holistic viewpoint. We still do, but now we've got to take that to them proactively. And so um, we got to get ahead because you know, a lot of times by the time the student comes to see us, they've been struggling for a little while. Um, there's been stuff that's been brewing and they finally come out. We've got to get to them before it gets to that level because it's even harder and more difficult for them to come to us now. And do you feel like student success technologies that maybe you use at Sonoma, are, have, has it become more important during these current times to be utilizing those? Yeah, I mean, so uh, we utilize EAB Navigate for a lot of our um, communication outreach for um email and and text messaging we also have we call it seawolf chat it's what we branded admit hubs chatbot and so we utilize that for a lot of outreach too to students and that's been really beneficial what actually but with this generation what has been the most beneficial for us at sonoma state university is we quickly implemented a peer success coaching program right when we went to shelter in place and we repurposed all of our student assistance and student success and advising to basically be an outreach call center basically and connect with our students to bring them back and have that sense of belonging on campus so they outreached we and we did this for every student at Sonoma State we're not the big we're not as big as you down in San Bernardino we're about 7,500 undergraduates so we had about 120 we call them PSCs PSCs and every week they outreach students and that's how we were able to get information about credit, no credit, about the online forms, um, about extending the leave of absences, because we are hearing it over and over from students from our PSCs. And so that's where we actually were able to get the biggest bang for our buck, I would say. Jimmy, this might be putting you on the spot a little bit, but one of the things that we have been talking to advisors about has been asking them what advice they would give to their younger self when, when they were starting out, knowing what you know now. So for you, if you were to reflect on, you know, where you are now, what you know, are there things that you would offer as advice to your younger self or to, to people who are listening to the podcast who are maybe starting out in advising or looking to move into advising? What would I tell my younger self? I would tell my younger self that it is much more than checking the box. 
right? I'm I'm older, you know, so I I was I had my advisor was basically a, a box checker as a faculty, and so it wasn't much use to me back then. But if I had an advisor like the advisors we have today, and that the, we have the advisor at Sonoma State, I would have utilized them so much more, and I probably would have looked at entering advising at an earlier stage, um, because for me. I, I love puzzles. I love putting things together. And, and that's what advising I can see does for a lot of students. And so for me, the recommendation would have been, um, you know, learn more, look, learn more about advising, utilize it better and, and know more than what, what I thought it was at the time. Number two, it's so important, especially now with COVID-19 that we are able to take breaks. We talk self-care a lot. Um, but sometimes for me at least, because I work, 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 and then I try to self-care and I never feel like I get back all my stamina. Sometimes you just need a little bit bigger breaks as well. And so telling yourself that it's okay to take a vacation, there's no reason to to walk around saying, I've got 360 hours of vacation. Utilize that because we're working hard, you know, and it's a stressful job too. We're on the front, advisors are on the front lines. Um, they hear all the issues our students are going through, and that can be difficult. So uh, making sure you, you have time for yourself, making sure you have time for other passions in life as well is really, really important. To, so you can be there for your students um, and you're rejuvenated and you can be there to assist them is, so I think, so important. Something I would tell myself and something that I struggle to do still today. It's, it's a work in progress. You know, I just got to work on it. But I think that also just ties into, you know, you're talking about, you know, oh, I have 360 hours of vacation, but we never know what later is going to look like. Um, if there is going to be a later and this situation, you know, if we did a whole 180, like no one knew this was going to happen and want to be able to take, have that self-care, utilize that vacation, uh, take those breaks. I mean, it, it's great advice. I just hope a lot of people will actually do it. And that's something that I struggle with as well. Yeah. And I think it's having open conversations at the same time with supervisors. Right. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times we think that I got to be at work, so they think that I'm I'm doing a great job. My, I want my boss to know that I'm a really good advisor, so I'm going to be here all the time. Yeah, I, but at the same time, if you're a director of advising, you were advisor in the past, and so you've been through that, and you should know, you know, the struggles and the stress of the job, and and be flexible and say, hey, all right take this week off, take these two weeks off, making sure that everyone's got that is, is important. So making sure you're having open conversations about how you're feeling with your supervisor is important because supervisors, unfortunately, can't read minds. And so we, we can sometimes see tells of of stress and, and exhaustion, but not always. And so just having an open conversation, I think it's really, really important. So I wanted to touch back with, with let's say, our, our current students. Um, Sonoma, at this point, we're you know, recording this on May 14th. Is Sonoma done with the semester already, or is it coming up? Tomorrow is our last day of finals. Okay, so done, almost done. This is it, yes. So what advice would you give to students that are graduating you know, in, in this time, or that are on the quarter system and they're going to be graduating very soon? What advice would, would you have for them? I would say um, utilize your career center and career services more than you ever have in the past like I know in the CSU, our career directors are getting together on almost on a weekly basis to talking about what does this this new world look like for um, new hires and new employees. And so how do you do an interview in Zoom? How do you do an on-campus or not an on-campus, like an you know in-person interview virtually? How do you set up a, a resume in this world? So there's things have changed quickly for a lot of these companies. And the, the experts are career service professionals. So let's outreach them. Let's utilize them. And for a lot of the schools, you get free access to them as an alumni for up to a year or two. 
So even if you are graduating this week or in two weeks or in two months, continue to utilize those services because they're, if you try to find a career coach in the real world, they're going to cost you 125, 150 bucks. This is free and they're just as good, if not better, because they're so um, connected with the community. So I'd say utilize that and also look at secondary options right now. Um, we mentioned before, I mentioned before that I, I took a year, I was going to take a year off to volunteer after I graduated in China. We can't travel right now, but there's still a lot of volunteer opportunities available locally that we could look at. Um, maybe we want to do an extra internship. Um, you know, there's these Dewey Parker short-term internships. Maybe we utilize that to get some different experience. Um, maybe we look at a grad school that we were thinking of doing in a year or two. Maybe we start it now. So what our plan was two months ago can't be our plan now. We've got to adjust that plan. So utilize the professionals and look at other choices that out there for yourselves. I think that's really solid advice uh, for for students and I think stuff that advisors can take on on board there as well when they are having those conversations with students. You mentioned there that, you know, the way things looked two months ago is not how things look now. And I suppose, I don't know if you if you engaged in any planning uh, around it as yet, but for new students, for orientation, how, what what does that look like as we try to uh, help those students make the the transition? And obviously, there are different cohorts who are who are coming into our universities and institutions. But what are the things you know maybe that ad advisors should be cognizant of when they're trying to plan for orientation in this new online COVID nineteen world? Yeah, so we are actively planning our orientation at Sonoma State right now, and um, I know every campus is and trying to figure out how to do it. And it's really interesting because everyone's doing it so differently. So it's going to be interesting to see how they all work and and the engagement that we get with our students, which is, I think, kind of an exciting time with that. With advising, I mean, again, this goes back to we've got to understand that our students are 18 years old. They're coming into this. They were expecting to be on campus. They were expecting to have that traditional first-year experience. They were expecting to make friends and create community and join clubs and organizations. And they can do that to an extent, but they can't do it the way they did before. So as advisors, we've got to help them find those different connections at orientation, right? And so as we have those conversations, you know, the most important thing for the student at orientation is what's my fall schedule going to look like, right? And so making sure that they're happy with that fall schedule is one, but then also starting to create that relationship at orientation virtually like, hey, you know, what What are you, are you interested in getting involved in? What can we still do remotely? How? What connections can we make with you now? So when we start classes in August, and unfortunately, you're not in a dorm, you're not in-person classes, but you can still connect and create your community virtually, I think is going to be an important piece. And again, it's the advisor who knows all these things that could connect them to the different areas. Excellent points. And as we wrap up this interview, let's do a little blast from the past. So we were talking before we started recording that I was just Googling to find some more information, things I might be able to ask you. And I stumbled upon your Angel Fire website from way back when and saw some awesome pictures of your time in South Africa. And since traveling is not many people are traveling right now, can you talk about your experience traveling to South Africa and, and how that was? Absolutely. So I studied abroad in South Africa in 2002. And so um, this is eight years after the end of apartheid. And so the country was still really trying to come together. So it was a really interesting time um, for to be there and experiencing different things. We were in a 
town called Port Elizabeth, which was in the Eastern Cape, which is uh, where Nelson Mandela was born. And and um, and so we got to spend a lot of time around his hometown and where he grew up. And it was just fascinating. It was a fascinating country. It was a fascinating time to be there. Um, it was a group of about 20 of us. And it actually became why I love traveling internationally. Uh, my family, my wife and I take our kids internationally. We love to show them different cultures and experience different things. It's why I ended up in Asia for five years. But um, it set the tone because it teaches us so much about the world that, you know, we can live in California. I'm from Minnesota. I had never basically left Minnesota very much besides going to like Disneyland and stuff like that when I was a kid. And so you, you, you're always around the same people and you think that's the way the world is. But when you experience um, something so drastically different of going into um, Soweto and in Johannesburg, South Africa, and seeing how the people are living there and seeing how happy and content and just what they have for community and, and, and everything was just an amazing experience. And I still to this day have friends where, from South Africa who we chat with every once in a while. And, I, you know, you you had to find stuff on you on uh, Google for me because I'm not, I don't have a very big Internet presence, but we still get together and we've even met up a couple times since 2002. Um, but it was it was a great, great experience. I recommend it going to South Africa to anyone. It's so diverse. It's so beautiful. People are amazing. Food's great. It's one of those countries that we're like, all right, we, it's been almost 20 years. It's time to go back and see what's changed since I was there. Well, that's a perfect way to, to end, end this interview. And on a personal note, I just want to say thank you again for everything that you did for the California Collaborative Conference. I mean, it really was an honor uh, working under you on the steering committee for that. Um, I learned a lot from you. And I think from the first meeting that, that we had for the conference, I knew I was like, yeah, Jamie's going to make make things happen with this conference. I mean, it, it's unfortunate again that it didn't a lot of it didn't come to fruition in the end. But I am looking forward to finally meeting you in person. I was so looking forward to it in March. Uh, but at some point, we will make it happen. Well, I think uh, if we ever need to go um, adventures and advising on the road, and you need like a roadie to carry your equipment, Matt, I can take it to to Dublin. We can go see Colin together. Let's do it deal I'll, I'll test everything i don't need to be online i'll just be the roadie <laughs> i would love to welcome you both to dublin uh, jamie i think that was great i mean i think quite how you finished there that taking a step outside of your comfort zone and trying to gain other perspectives is just really sage advice for everyone not just advisors not just for students but everyone at large so thank you for joining us today i i think the the podcast has we it's been such a wonderful experience for us to get to chat to people, to hear their stories. But what has also been really good, I think, is we're getting really solid nuggets of practical advice that listeners are able to take away. And they've told us that they're able to take away and utilize in their work. And I think you have provided those again today. So thanks for taking the time to join us. And we really appreciate it. Yeah, this is really fun, gentlemen. I really appreciate the being here today. Matt, like you you said, I love those little nuggets of information, and I think Jamie sprinkled them throughout that interview. He's also a wonderful storyteller, and I think those two make a, a fantastic combination when somebody can tell stories, but the, the stories have something you can take from them into your own uh, professional life. That's That's what I love. So cheers to Jamie for that. I think that those were three really interesting interviews. I hope listeners took a lot from it. I want to say thanks to all three once again for chatting to us. We we do appreciate it. And 
we are moving towards the end of episode 12. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, we hope you might consider going back and checking out some of the previous episodes. If you are, uh, I suppose, a longtime listener, maybe you could consider uh, leaving us uh, a review on whatever uh, platform you listen to your your podcast that would be wonderful and if you have ideas for topics or people that we should talk to or you want to volunteer yourself please do get in touch Matt and I love to hear from all of you uh, and it's Oh, really interesting to hear what is going on in the advising world. But before we wrap up, Matt, earlier in the episode, you mentioned that we were dedicating this to Chris Linfield. And I didn't know Chris, but I know you have spoken highly uh, about Chris. So maybe you could tell me and listeners a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So Chris Leffel was the Associate Dean of Undergraduate Studies at Cal State San Bernardino. And prior to that role, he also worked for the College of Natural Sciences. Um, he was also a previous faculty member um, at Cal State. He started as the Associate Dean of what we call UGS or Undergraduate Studies in 2014. And he was charged with many different projects. So that included implementing a new appointment scheduling and note-taking uh, platform, EAB, which some schools uh, probably know about, and also was the chair of the third annual California Collaborative Advising and Counseling Conference. And he was also part of the original group that started the California Collaborative Conference. So kind of also ties into uh, Jamie being the chair of, of the uh, what was supposed to be the the fifth annual uh, California Collab Conference, but uh, Chris passed away uh, June second two years ago. Um, I was actually it was actually on a Saturday, and I was on my way to a, a baseball game in San Diego. Um, I actually had the day off, and you might think, "What's well, a Saturday?" But this was also during the time that we had transfer orientation, so I was. It was one of those things where I was happy that I was uh, had the day off and then on my way down, got a text and then a phone call about Chris's passing. And so uh, my heart sank knowing that, you know, one of my favorite administrators at Cal State San Bernardino and someone that I called a mentor was, was gone. But there's a lot, a lot of memories I have about Chris. He was someone that I got to work closely with for the third annual California Club Conference. He's actually the person that got me started in conference planning. When I found out that he was the chair and Cal State San Bernardino was uh, one of the co-hosts of the conference along with UC Riverside, I just remember um, wanting to be a part of it just to help out, just to see what it was like helping with the conference. And I went and asked him, I said, hey, am I able to help out with the conference? And his response was like, yes, you're on the steering committee. And I was like, wait, what? Uh, no, 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 that's for like all you uh, administrator type people, uh, not for me. And he's like, no, you want to help, right? So you're on it. And I was like, oh, okay. I had so uh, many nerves just run through me during that time. And eventually, like I got you know used to it. I was like, this is actually kind of fun being able to help plan this. And from Cal State San Bernardino's side, it was essentially, it was like uh, both of us, uh, every day, whether it was email, phone call, um, meeting in person, weekends, holidays, 
we had some type of interaction regarding the conference and that was for over a year that that we were doing that and i got to just kind of learn a lot from him he he taught me about communicating with all different levels of uh administration and conference planning and you know working with uh other committees on the conference and anything i wanted to do he always said yes go for it that was always usually his answer was like sure go for it um, he never. He always wanted to see you run with your ideas. Um, and some of my memories for that conference about him was I. I just remember him. He always wanted a pin. He's like, I want a conference pin. I want. I wanted to make that official. I want people to wear it at the conference. Like he was obsessed with wanting wanting a pin. And so uh, I kind of took the lead on that and had a pin made. And. I just remember being so happy about it. And that's, you know, it's one of the things he would always talk about. And from, you know, if any, you know, any listeners that, that know me about advising type pins, if you want to know who, who started all that, Chris Linfolt, you have to thank for that. One thing that, you know, and that's, I think kind of shows who Chris was as a person and as a, as an associate dean and as a chair of a conference is it was Thanksgiving Eve and an email got sent from someone about kind of some concerns that they had about a certain aspect of the conference. And I didn't read the email until uh, Thanksgiving day. I woke up, checked my email. And if anyone has like Outlook on their phone, like usually the last email pops up of the chain. And so all I saw first was Chris's email that said, don't worry about it. Enjoy Thanksgiving. I'll take care of it. And then I read the rest of the emails to see what he was referring to. And so the following Monday, I go in the office and I was like, hey, so why'd you email on Thanksgiving? He's like, did you read it on Thanksgiving Day? I said, yes. And he's like, I knew you would. That's why I sent it. He's like, I wanted you to not have to worry about helping with the conference on Thanksgiving break. He said, um, I wanted you to just enjoy it because I know you would just worry about it and want to try to take care of it then and there. He's like, and you didn't need to. And Chris was always like two steps ahead. He always was thinking of everything um and he was always someone that could could read people because he also has a counseling background so he always knew what, what a lot of times what everyone was thinking and so that, that's also kind of made things great about chris is you could go to him talk to him about anything and you know he was able to kind of just chat with you and and kind of put you at ease um but my last memory i want to share is also regarding the conference is at the end of the conference uh craig seal who was previously the dean of undergraduate studies, so he was on the previous uh, episode. He went up on stage and said, um, you know, how much he wanted to thank us for the, you know, the committee for the conference. And he said that uh, with Chris as chair, you know, Chris was like was Batman. That every Batman needed a Robin. So for us, he always thought of us as the dynamic duo of the conference. And my friend and colleague Kara. Uh, who we'll hear from in a little bit, like a month or so after his passing, uh, she was at the store and found a like Batman and Robin shirt that she ended up getting me. And so for me, it's just a constant reminder every time I see it and wear it always reminds me, reminds me of Chris. But we reached out to a few members uh, to see if they could share some memories about Chris uh, to end this episode. And so uh, we'd like to play for you now to end the episode, some clips from Charlie Nutt, from Dewan Jackson, Deborah Parsons and also Kara Marie Fom, and so they can share their stories and memories about Chris. And we will see you on the next episode. It was such an honor and privilege to know Chris, and to see his commitment to students, to see his commitment to advising, 
and to see how important it was to him to bring the advisors together throughout the state through the California Collaborative. The legacy that he built, working so closely with other advisors throughout the CSU system, the UC system, and the community college system, is something that had never occurred before. And so we all owe Chris a huge debt for everything he did. But the people who were most touched were the students on your campus, the students that he worked with every day, and all of the advisors that he mentored and believed in and supported. So thank you so much, Chris, for all you did. He was a wonderful friend and a wonderful mentor. Hello, I just want to say thank you for allowing me this opportunity to give you my thoughts about Dr. Chris. Um, he was such an amazing person, and I'm so grateful that I had a chance to get to know him and and have a good understanding of his commitment and dedication to student success, specifically serving underserved and uh, served in underrepresented students. Uh, I think that was a testament to why he was so passionate about putting on the collaborative conference and making sure that um, we were able to bring the three systems together from the UCs to the community colleges to the Cal State system to just, uh, to um, share best practices and be able to have that amazing handoff when the students did transfer in or just have a general understanding of how things worked. So Dr. Chris, um, I met him in 2014 and I've just can still hear that laugh and that voice and to his family just know he left a legacy and it will be very difficult for us to live up to it but i'm i'm confident that we will continue to make him proud thank you i've been asked to share a special memory i have of chris linfield unfortunately i don't have one single memory i have a lot of memories of laughing we laughed all the time, even though uh, when things got stressful or um, serious, we still laughed. And so that was an important attribute of Chris. He had a great sense of humor. Another thing is he was always so humble, um, very uh, grounded person, never really had Airs of being something that um, that he was better than anyone, uh, and I really enjoyed his friendship. And um, the main uh, thing about losing Chris was that it really put a big void in all of our lives um, at Cal State. He was the glue that held us together, and we do miss him terribly. Chris Limfield, where do I even begin? Just thinking about Chris brings a huge smile to my face. At work, I was blessed to have my desk directly across from Chris's office. That meant I could always hear his laugh. His laugh was so contagious. We always called it the precious pup laugh. When he had to leave his office or he was coming into his office, he had to pass my desk. And just seeing his smile and feeling his positive vibe brought a smile to my face. It made the office so enjoyable. Chris was a mentor to me, but also to so many others. 
He was great with students and took the time to guide students personally towards their academics to make sure they were on the best path for their future. He was honest, very supportive, and so encouraging. I personally have so many fond memories of Chris, but the one that I looked forward to every single day to start my mornings were the jokes. Every morning, my coworker Mindy and I would come up with the joke of the day and we would write it on his whiteboard in his office so when he came into work, he had to figure out the answer. It was just a fun way to start our day. Chris was a prankster. He made coming to work fun. He worked hard and played harder. I miss Chris tons and I will cherish these memories forever. Don't want a complication, complication.